Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Bjorn Stevens. Yeah, that's right. Bjorn is about as big a figure in climate science as a person can be. He established himself early in his career as a leader in the study of marine stratus top boundary layers, and that eventually led him to a broader climate research agenda. And since about 2008, Bjorn heads one of the world's most prominent climate modeling labs, the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology in Hamburg, Germany. In that position, with his team there and many collaborators, Bjorn has produced an enormous volume of important research, and that's not to mention the countless additional studies that use the data his lab contributes to the CMIP archives. The topics of this work are too many to try to list. Bjorn's scientific breadth is truly exceptional, but as an example, he's perhaps best known as a modeler and a theorist, but he's led many field campaigns. The synthesis of these different modes of scientific inquiry is a hallmark of Bjorn's research. Bjorn's leadership role in the global climate science community goes well beyond this astonishing scientific productivity, though. He has a unique gift for starting, leading, and facilitating important and sometimes difficult scientific conversations. His 2015 paper, Rethinking the Lower Bound on Aerosol Radiative Forcing, comes to my mind personally as just one example, and his publication list contains a long section of, quote, commentaries, meta-pieces that step back and look at big problems holistically and propose ways forward for the scientific community. And currently, Bjorn is doing this in a bigger way than ever before as he leads an international effort to develop the Earth Virtualization Engine, or EVE. EVE is conceived as a large international collaboration, taking CERN, the particle physics facility, as a model. EVE's proposed mission is to develop kilometer scale, that is, ultra-high resolution global climate models, using the biggest computers that exist, and to use them to support climate services worldwide. So, towards the end of the interview, we spent quite a bit of time talking about that. But before that, we go through Bjorn's early trajectory, starting from a childhood where he moved constantly through his undergraduate education at Iowa State to his PhD at Colorado State and his early career at NCAR and UCLA, before getting to Hamburg. As an undergrad, turns out Bjorn was a political activist. That's one thing I hadn't known. Because Bjorn and I are contemporaries and old friends. We met when we were both graduate students at a summer school at NCAR, and we were lab partners in one of the hands-on research exercises. So I knew before this conversation that Bjorn is a good conversationalist, and it's always fun to talk to him, and this was no exception. We talked about creativity, the differences and similarities between science and art, and other philosophical things in between the life history, career, and science. I was really glad to be able to do this one, and it turned out to be everything I hoped it would be. So that's enough introduction. Let's get to my conversation with Bjorn Stevens. I, I listened to a few, but they did follow the pattern of you kind of walk through their life and their contributions, which is sort of fine. But it seems like having a little bit of uh, um, controversy wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want um, to, we don't have to debate any big things, but I think kind of touching on some of the um, fun things, um, either in the past or the present could be, could be cool. Um, or just the, well, where the we, science is going. We can do that. Um, 
you know, I, um, and feel free. I, I, you're always so kind and, and generous. You know, you uh, feel free well, to take shots. Um, well, I don't want people I, to start refusing to do it if they hear. You know, it's not a journalism in the sense that, like, I'm not trying to, like, get people or catch them in their inconsistencies. No, no, but it should be. A, it, it, it could not should. It, it could be a um, it could be a fun conversation, you know, sort of that also like the things that that, that you might be curious about, but Maybe you thought, well, this isn't the right forum. I don't know. You play it by, I, I'm not too, I, I think that would just make it a bit more fun. And the question is how to make it fun for your, and you know your listeners and the audience you want. So anyway, don't don't feel like you need to, um, feel free to be critical or raise different issues. Um, so Okay. What I'm taking from this is Bjorn wants me to give him a hard time. Yeah, yeah I like that. That's always something. You're not the same uh, as everybody else. You, you, not everybody wants to be grilled and well i just kind of think you, it should be it should be interesting and fun and, and i could talk about what i've done but i tend not to think too much about the past and um yeah so um well the future is all speculation right so the only thing yeah but it's sure more fun to think about the future because it's open the past is just sort of you know the more you regurgitate it the more you just regurgitate your regurgitations and um so Okay. Well, um, we can talk about the past. I, I have nothing against it. Um, and once in a while, I, I'm kind of amazed lately at um, time goes by, and um, and I don't think we understand each other's contributions that much um, as you'd like to. You know, we all understand our own contributions um, probably a little too well. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, our ability to understand other people's contributions sometimes is a bit underdeveloped. Okay. Well, you, you're good. getting good so, at it. So anyway, feel free to shape it how you wish. But can we do the past for a little bit? Can we? Can yeah, we yeah, start yeah. The past is fine. I just didn't want to spend all the time in the past. So where are you from originally? Huh, yeah, good question. I, I'm not really that sure, actually. Um, I was born in Germany. Um, really? Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Like many people. That I didn't remember. Uh, yeah, my father was in the military. So I had a military father who met a German woman. And um, here I am. Shortly after being born, we moved to the United States and my mother naturalized herself. And so I grew up as a, in the very beginning, as a, mil a military kid with a German mother. Fort Bragg was my first U.S. destination, North Carolina, when I was, I guess, still an infant. You know, I don't, I just know stories. Did you speak the language as a kid? Did you always speak the language? No, no. I was a few months old. So at that time, you know, people didn't go back and forth. At least people of our class didn't go back and forth between the continents a lot. So I kind of have this picture that my mother saw her new life in the United States. This was Germany not that long after the war, um, mid-60s, so 20 years, but still she had grown up in the post-war Germany. And the United States was a place of opportunity. So um, my father didn't speak German. And so the, the, the language of the house was English. And so I grew up speaking English. So my mother tongue is English, but my mother's tongue was not English. And I seem to remember, I mean, because we've known each other a long time, I seem to remember that your childhood involved a lot of moving. Yeah, we moved a lot. My dad was in the military, and then we he he worked for a oil services sort of firm, a chemical industry first, and then oil services. And these were really tended to be um, project based employment. So that you know the firm would send you for this project to that place, and then for the next project to that place. So so we moved around a lot, not because of the military. That was just the first few years of my life. Mm. but more through first changes of employment and then project to project as we would go around. So in the United States, I can give you a list if you want. Yeah, give me the list. Yeah, well, after <laughs> after North Carolina, I think we spent some time in Indiana. Northern Indiana is where my, uh, my dad and his family came from. My dad was born in southern Indiana. And then we lived in New Jersey. My dad worked in, um, 
I think it's Perth Amboy or something like that somewhere, some South Amboy. Mm -hmm. So that's where I learned to ride a bike and went to my first years of school. Uh -huh. And then we went west in a big brown Chevy Impala across the country to California. My dad got a new job there. And I remember cruising across the country, listening to Delta Dawn on the radio. So that would have been about 1973 or so. Mm -hmm. There we lived for a little bit in Huntington Beach with an aunt. And then Mission Viejo was a town in Orange County that was just kind of, you know, the suburban blossoming of, of Orange County. So they were creating these new communities. And so um, we'd move to these places and then um, you'd go to one school and then they'd finish the school and you'd go to another school. Then we moved to Alaska. The pipeline was being built. So we're up in Fairbanks. That was a cool place to be a kid. There I learned wow. to ski on the, the Geophysical Institute. We had nothing to do with the university, but the Geophysical Institute had a rope tow. And so we would go ski. And my mom uh -huh. had these old wooden skis with these really old, like 1950s bindings or something like that. But I really took to skiing. So I like skiing. That was Alaska. And then we went to the UK and I lived um, near Manchester in a town called Macclesfield for about three years and went to an English school. Okay. Then after that, we went to um, Calgary, Alberta. That was, the, that was the tar sands time. So you can kind of trace my path following fossil fuels. And um, then we went back to California. I graduated from night school in Laguna Beach. Laguna Niguel. Why, wait, why night school? Well, when I moved around, my, my whole education was a bit of a patchwork, you know, so I, every place I, I would go to, a couple times, you know, I, they, they set me back two years and they set me forward two years. So I, yeah, I had a bit of a, a non-traditional education. And then when we moved from Canada, it was in my last year of high school. So I, I needed to take all these classes to satisfy the requirements. And I think if I had gone to the normal high school for my last grade of school, I would have had to take, you know, four years of history and three years of gym or something like that. So it, it, it seemed kind of dumb. So I just got this, um, I think it's called a graduate equivalent degree or whatever that, that thing is called. GED, um, yeah. Kind of yeah, taking night tests in Laguna Niguel. You know, I'd go in there, study history for half an hour and then fill out the multiple choice and history class done, you know, next one. And so then I did that last, the, the last requirements I needed for that in a, in a couple of months. And then I worked for a bit, just, you know, loading trucks and stuff like that um, in a department store. And I kind of thought I was going to do that for a while. But out of a strange combination of circumstance, I decided to go to university and then I moved to Iowa. So that took me back to the Midwest, upper Midwest. And um, Iowa, then Colorado, and then Colorado, different places, Fort Collins. And then, you know, Boulder, we, we got to know each other about that time. Right. So I've always thought that you sound mis Midwestern. People tell me that I have a bit of a Canadian intonation, um, not a real strong one. Like you can hear that from people like well, David Well, those Neelan are close to each other, right? In yeah, yeah, exactly. So something, <laughs> yeah. So my, at three years in the sort of teenage, uh, I don't know, 13 to 16-ish when I was in Calgary. I see. Maybe that was Maybe it. that gave a little bit of that. <laughs> Calgary, it's big Ukrainian place, Saskatchewan too. Um, so um, I don't know. I got some of that upper Midwest intonation. Okay. Any reflection on how your education or psyche or anything else was affected by moving so much? Kind of unusual. That's a lot of, I mean, I know that you're not the only person in the world to do it, but that's still, that's yeah. a lot. People ask me that a lot. And I, I don't know. I think there's, there's, I, I've never been too reflective. We just, it's kind of what we did. Um, I know my sister didn't like it a whole lot, but um, maybe I wasn't as social as she was, and it just seemed like, okay, that's who we are. That's what we do. That's what happens. And You never felt sad to leave someplace? No. I mean, my mother died when I was uh, in, in my young teens, so when we lived in, oh. in the UK. And there was a period there where I didn't want to move back to North America. But yeah, for the most part, I didn't feel sad to move. All right. Okay. When do you get interested in science? 
Oh, in college, I guess. You know, I was always interested in, I guess you could say math broadly, but, mm -hmm. you know, as a kid too, I would play around with maybe it'd be math engineering, you know, um, electric circuit things and make devices and stuff like that. And then I went to college and I was pretty good at math, not probably like a lot of the people on your show who would be really good at math, but I was pretty good at math. And if you're good at math and you came from a background like I had, then you would study engineering. So I studied engineering mm -hmm. and I quickly realized that I didn't want to work for someone, that I, that I wanted to express myself more creatively. Mm -hmm. And that was associated with a more academic outlook to sort of be in possession of your creative output. So at some point it was really about not working for someone. Did you have a bad boss or something? Or did you just realize that yeah, I, blue I did or? actually. Oh, so, <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 the, 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 I just hated working for idiots. And, um, and invariably, if you have enough bosses, enough of them will also be <laughs> bad bosses. But the, the other thing that I didn't like about it was this idea of working for money. Why would you do that if you didn't have to? You know, and this idea that you could do what you like to do and get paid seemed like mm -hmm. a much better option if you could do it. So the question was, you know, how do you do what you want to do, keep control of your creative output mm -hmm. and actually be able to, you know, drink good coffee now and again and go out to eat and those other things that you do on the side of life that make it enjoyable. So the, the question was how to get paid for doing what you want to do anyway. And that was the puzzle I was trying to figure out in the college years. And, and science opened itself up as something that, you know, I seemed reasonably good at and felt the rewards of doing it. And it had this wonderful mix of being a creative work. Um, it had an aesthetic to it. It involved many different skills from writing to analyzing to programming, just something I felt in, fell into and, and realized I enjoyed and, and had a certain amount of success that allowed me to continue. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I went through the same process and I think I always ask people this, you know, how'd they get yeah. into it and what made them because we work in a field that has so much social relevance. And so I always want to know whether that was part of people's thinking at an early age or it wasn't. In most cases, it wasn't. Most of us are like you, I think, although you articulated it a bit more carefully than sometimes people do. I mean, in more detail. Yeah, it's an interesting set of issues then to think about a class of people that gets into it for that reason. I mean, basically, we're sort of similar to artists or other creative types, but we've found an interest that is a little easier to make a steady living from. And yet we're doing something that's societally relevant. So so it's tempting for some people to see us as somehow noble or something, but we're really not in our motivations. Most of <laughs> no, us. exactly. But you, you, <laughs> you originally were kind of thinking of a career in music or something like that, if I remember right. Well, yeah. And then that wasn't going so great. And so then I switched. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and, <laughs> science uh, is yeah, like, but I, science is similar. It's just a little easier to get a proper job doing it. And, yeah, exactly. And, I, and it's a little less random. The sort of reward system is still has a lot of randomness in it, but less than the arts do. The arts are really... But the thing I like about science that people don't appreciate who are not scientists is the is how much, at least for me, science and art are just different sides. I mean, we use different tools to express ourselves, but it's all about finding beauty in the world, you know, whether it's in the, the, the you know, the, the beauty of, of, of the written word, um, in more like the literary arts or the or the image in the visual arts or of sound and beauty is somehow connected to helping people see the world in ways that they couldn't see it before for me at least that's where where beauty emerges is where they see something new and fresh and this is something that i, I associate very much with art but i think it's also really true of science at its best and that's really a deep and powerful thing and that that that's great when you can do it so it becomes addictive pretty 
quickly. And like you said, when you use the tools that we do and we, we work on things which are s- considered societally relevant, it's a bit easier to make a living. Although I would make a case that um, we really undervalue the more classical arts in terms of their societal relevance. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, but it's so interesting. I mean, so I, I totally agree that science is more like art than it gets credit for in many ways. I mean, people that are successful at it are often people who are good at communicating and sort of seeing the story in data. But if you read, you know, the philosophy of science and the scholars who ask what makes science science, I wouldn't say that beauty never comes up, but mostly they're trying to answer the question of what makes science different than art, which is some amount of, you know, empirical test verification. I mean, so it's... Yeah, yeah they focus on the, on the, on the method. That's well, it's fine. it's a little more than the method. It's also set, trying, you're just trying to describe something about the world that somebody else could verify. But what's with. a painting doing? You know, when you think of, of someone, you know, when you make a switch of painting with lines to a painting with colors, in a sense, to, to how we see something, uh-huh. it's also about helping people see something in the world. Yeah, and so... Yeah. I think the the methodological stuff might be, at least for me, that's where the philosophy of science tends to focus more on. And then often trying to hold up the method as as special. You talked a little bit about it with Brian Mapes. I was listening to that interview. Mm. Mm. And I I liked how you characterized. I completely agree. If people haven't listened to the interview with Brian, he is really a, I mean, it's just fun to listen to Brian. He he just is such an original person and thinker. And um, yeah, it's a real delight. So. But what did and we he's say? He's a good about example of the artistry in in science. So. Oh yes, well he takes it to the far to a to an extreme. But, <laughs> but I would just say the philosophy of science is not just about the. I mean, describe when people try to answer what makes science science. It's not just about the method. It's about what the method's trying to achieve, which is establishing facts about the world that are in some sense verifiable, regardless of your aesthetic or other. Although you you once. You once you once said something. Um, I, I don't remember it exactly, but but I, in my mind, I have a, a, a paraphrasing of it, and I've I've used this again and again. In some variant, you once said something about science is about arguing, and I, I think, did? yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, um, you know that, that that people make statements and arguing about these statements. Maybe um, that reflects my upbringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which involves a lot of maybe, arguing. but but <laughs> but I took that I took that a bit of a step further because if you go back in the history of science, you know, there's this whole idea of um, you know the old ideas of Popper about falsifying hypotheses. Yeah, but. A, a constant thing, or if you go back to the positives even further, you know, like back in the in the early part of the last century where people talked about meaningful statements. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, science is really about creating a, a, a platform or a basis where we can argue in a constructive way. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can say something and I can have a hope of saying you're wrong um, and you have a hope of telling me that no i'm wrong and we that, that that creates a dynamic in a process where it normally leads us to a, a deeper understanding of the world and then you said well yeah. what's understanding um but but we can go into that i think and so this to me this dynamic of being able to argue is really essential in science you know if if science is really just about authority and making statements about being true and i tested my method and i'm right so i always i always picked up this point of view i attribute it to you about sciences, about arguing. And, well, um, I don't remember and, saying uh, that, but it is a lot of, I mean, a lot. I, I'm not actually well read in the philosophy of science, but what I have read recently is actually, there's views consistent with what you're saying, which is what the, well, the way it gets said is science is a social process. So there's sort of yeah. rules and there is a method, but the method and the rules are perpetually being negotiated. And that's why they're different in different fields, right? Different fields have 
biology and ecology and physics and chemistry have all different standards of evidence. And so there's something common to them. But if you try to write it down, you get in trouble because they're all different. And it's because it's, the people in those fields are negotiating it based on what they can actually do with what their problem is. So yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I think maybe the common thing about the things at least we call natural science is that you involve nature in your arguments. So you, you interact and you think of how can we interact with the world outside us to involve it in our discussions um, and let it sort of arbitrate among our different arguments. But we look to it as a bit of a, a judge. And of course, there's always the interpretation, which always makes it messy. And in the different fields, how we do that and how much we do that is different. Um, but I do think this, this, this aspect of arguing and involving nature as part of the social process that you described, which we call science, to come up in the end with stories that guide people and societies um, as we try to navigate our way through the world is sort of what we're what we're doing um, yeah i mean i think the thing that makes it different than art at the end of the day is that there has to be a way of settling the arguments in science whereas in yeah for now at least that's right you know we, because we do settle arguments and i think we, we argue it enough for a while we just can't think of a way to disagree anymore that makes any sense you know without being silly and and then we move on and we say that's established like you, you know because you can always be silly and say well nothing exists and you know we're just brains in a in a vat of water that are imagining everything um then that's hard to refute but if you want to avoid being silly then normally things get settled or many you know hopefully we get things settled and we it has a progression and you can see that progression because the things that science brings us aren't just stories but, you know, if you look at human development, um, yesterday I was at the sort of museum in Hamburg, which, which reflected on how people lived in the area, you know, a few hundred years ago. And if you looked at how people lived 150 years ago um, and how people died 150 years ago and what they knew, yeah, it's just amazing what science has helped us do and how much it's improved people's lives and mm. um, livelihood. And so science has this really, you know, that's the proof in the pudding, right? In, in, a, in a way that we're learning something essential about the world because it, it allows us to reach a different stature, you know, objectively different stature that I think that we don't really get by singing songs to each other as much as we might enjoy those songs. Okay. So it's in college that you come to whatever form of realization of all this that you came to. <laughs> and so then you major in what, what flavor of engineering? did you do? Well, I, electrical engineering. Okay. And so how'd you get from that to... So in electrical engineering, I kind of liked, I fell in love with Maxwell's equations. I don't know. They just seem so beautiful. Yeah. And so yeah, this well, is well, an yeah. example of a sort of field theory. You know, in physics, you could derive Maxwell's equations from really basic assumptions about symmetries of the universe and do it in four dimensions and get, you know, two simple equations. And that was just, you know, that was beauty, you know, to see that. And, and I remember to a, a teacher... I had in graduate school, I mean, in a graduate course in physics. And just this, this thought that you could start with a few ideas and come up with something that's so powerful was fantastic. And then I thought, well, okay, if Maxwell's equations are cool, then there might be other equations like Maxwell's equations, which are cool. <laughs> and so and then I, I took some classes on fluid dynamics, and I thought that mm. was really neat. That was sort of the area in which I was moving, on a couple of classes on plasmas, which is a variant of fluid dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of happy and content and sort of enmeshed in the social scene where I was doing my undergraduate master's. And I thought, well, I would just stay there. And this is in Iowa. Yeah, it was in Iowa, Iowa State, yeah. the, the state college there in Ames, Iowa. Yeah. Events conspired to make me think that maybe I should try something else. And I ended up in an atmospheric science department. Because the fluid dynamics made you decide to do, I mean, there, I feel like there's still, a, there's still some need for explanation there. I started the PhD program and I passed the exams. And then at some point I thought, in do what? I really want to do this? In, in electrical engineering I, at Iowa State. Okay. You were just um, so going to stay I, there. I was, the thought initially was to stay there because I was sort of so enmeshed. But I, at the same time, I had this parallel thought 
because there I was, you know, a half a political activist and a half a graduate student. That if I, you know, I needed wait, to wait, 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 we can't just jump past that. What was, what's the political oh, activism? Oh, as a as a as a as a college student, I was involved in all sorts of things um, on on the politics side. Um, so, like what you know, divesting. Well, we, we divesting. I remember, campaign. yeah, yeah. What's that? For anti party, there's all Central American. You know uh -huh. conflicts there, so the wars in Nicaragua and solidarity. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There were burgeoning environmental movements and equality movements, so we started this thing called the Committee um, on Equality. Um, we started a campus newspaper that we ran for a while. Mm -hmm. There was anti-nuclear stuff, so the you know the nuclear test ban treaty. Um, William Sloan Coffin. You know, I was part of a lectures program. We'd invite all these people to to come. John I Lewis. I got to hang out with him. About you. Angela Davis, I got to spend a few days with her, you know, so I got no to kidding. meet um, some really interesting people. And then we, I mean, there was the the, the, the test ban stuff um, in Nevada. So we did things there, the anti-CIA things that were going on. So there's all this sort of stuff. Did this begin before college or continue after it? Or was this continue? Uh, this was mostly, this was mostly undergrad masters in the first year of PhD. So I was quite immersed in that. And then I was thinking about, oh, do I want to follow an academic career? And in this little group of people, we, we, we would hang out in this cafe with a bunch of grumpy old physicists. And one guy mm -hmm. named Jim Evans worked in the Ames lab, which is a high energy lab there. You know, I'd ask him about graduate school. And he said, you know, the important thing is to um, find somebody who you really want to work with on and in a good place. And so then I realized, well, maybe maybe that my course wasn't the best course that I was taking at the time, and I should rethink it. So I took a year off from school, so I stopped, and then I went to Alaska again. And in the year off, the idea was to earn some money, so I worked a bit on the oil spill cleanup. Actually, I worked on the cleanup of the cleanup, so I wasn't, you know, the Valdez mm -hmm. had made the mess there. and oh, okay. They cleaned it all up, but it went back to the warehouse, so I kind of was on the tails of that. And then I had to, my student loans were due. I had a ton of student loans. And after six months, they make them due, so I said, oh... I better go midway through the year back to graduate school. Otherwise, I have to find a way to start paying back the loans. And so I um, looked around and I applied to Colorado State because they were accepting kind of midterm applications. And I applied. I got this letter from this guy who said, yeah, I'd be interested in having you. I originally thought of working with someone else, Graham Stevens, who people know in the field. But he was yeah. um, a bit booked up. And Bill Cotton got my application and offered me a position and worked out right. well. I didn't really know the area, but um, yeah, off I went. So either pick carefully the right person to work with or go with whoever will take you in the middle of the year. Well, that was the first thing for the break. <laughs> but but then when the loans are due, you become quite practical again, right? So the program was was really well recognized. So I thought I'm going to a good program. So that was, you know, so I only, you know, was thinking about applying to, you know, the programs which were seen as stellar in their area. And Colorado State is not a particularly well-known university, but the atmospheric science program there has been very strong yes. for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And so that was yes. also when I was at Iowa State, there was a professor who had come from Colorado State and was really held up that program. So I said, okay, this is a program I could apply to. So it filtered that way. Okay. So let's talk about graduate school. I mean, I met you at some point in the middle of it, but and so I know roughly what your thesis was about. I didn't, don't know that much about Cotton, though. I knew his name, of course. Yeah. So Cotton worked with Joanne Simpson for a while as a, as a okay. postdoc in, in Miami. And he was one of the early developers of, um, let's say, cloud modeling and taking cloud modeling to three-dimensional cloud modeling, and then uh -huh. eventually cloud dynamics and mesoscale 
modeling. So right. it was really about building models of clouds. And that really meant treating the microphysics first and the, the dynamics second. And I think already in the mid-90s, he was developing really fairly sophisticated representations of clouds and their interactions with atmospheric motion fields. So he had a, a pretty big group at Colorado State, right. but he was a hands-off advisor. You know, he really tried to create an environment where people could flourish. And most of my intellectual banter was with a, a postdoc in his group, a guy named Graham Feingold, who some of your mm. listeners might know of, um, who's at, um, in Boulder, Colorado at the, at the NOAA lab there. And so you were doing boundary layer stratocumulus already? Yeah, exactly. Time? So the, the idea at that time was, you know, it was in the early days, people were interested in how particulate matter, you know, what we call the aerosol would influence the structure, dynamics, brightness of clouds with the idea that human emissions of sulfate were leading to, a, or SO2 were leading to sulfate aerosol, which was making the microstructure of the clouds change in a way which would change their macrostructure. And then change the energy budget of the earth. So the idea there was to try to make a very detailed model that would capture these interactions and see how they work. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a guy in Arizona named Sean Toomey, and he had this idea that if you have more particulate matter, then the, the cloud water spread up over more droplets, which increases their surface area as a whole, and that allows them to intercept more solar radiation and hence reflect more solar radiation, which makes mm -hmm. the clouds brighter. And people had seen these in ship tracks as ships would go through in the sort of effluent from the, 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 the ship or the aerosol plume or, or whatever that came out of the ship would, would lead to tracks. And the Navy was interested in that. But from a climate point of view at the time, people also became interested in it because this, this cloud brightening might be masking mm -hmm. some of the CO2 warming. And so the question was, how big was this effect? And if it went away, would we get a, you know, a big slap in the face in terms of the warming that would then reassert itself. And so that was the project was to develop a fine scale model that allowed you to look at the detailed interaction of the microphysics with the radiation and the cloud dynamics. Right. What I remember is that already at that time you were getting involved in the various, maybe they were even international or at least multi-institutional collaborative projects on comparing models of these things. Yeah, I grew up in that community. So Bill was pretty good at getting his students involved in things. And Chris mentioned on your interview, Chris Betherton was uh, was mentioning about these, what we mm -hmm. call the, the, the GUX cloud system studies, GCSS yeah. case studies. And the first one was this fire case study. And Chin Ho Mong was a um, research scientist at NCAR, a senior scientist there. And I had gotten in touch with her fairly early in my PhD. And that first case study actually was one that I largely set up with her of what was observed stratocumulus in this, this first ISKIP regional experiment. Um, so we set up the case and we modeled it. And I kind of came of age. I remember very early in my PhD, I, I think the first year or something, I met Chris in an elevator at one of these meetings. And there was a community of us who kind of came together. Some people that, you know, there was Chris Bretherton, there was myself, there's Pierre Siepsma, who's, um, you know, done really lots yeah. of fundamental work. There's Kristen Jacob in, in, in Mona, Shua Texera at NRL. Um, Andy Brown is the, you know, director of research at ESMWF, was one of these people. John Petch, who's now a director at NCAR, is just taken over the, the climate lab, was, yeah. was in that group. So there's a, a, a international group of people. Peter Dunkerke, who passed away early, was in that group. There's a whole group of people who really came of age in that community. And we really stimulated each other in terms of, you know, trying to figure out the problems. Chris figured out the cloud breakup problem. I kind of figured out the, the drizzle problem that led to the first measurements of entrainment. And so we kind of worked through these different issues. And um, yeah, I think all of us benefited tremendously. Yeah, I, I became aware of these collaborations, I think probably from you actually first. 
And at that time, I had the impression, and I guess I still have the impression, that this particular group, GCSS it was, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is now gas, was a particularly effective early one. I mean, people sort of really focused on specific set of questions and managed to answer them in a way that it doesn't always work like that. But so yeah. I, I don't know, made an impression. I mean, the time it sort of still does as an example of how to do things. I mean, you could say CMIP is the same, but on a much larger scale, but the much larger scale makes it a little hard to focus in the same way. Yeah, it was science-driven. I mean, we wanted to understand how things work. You know, often it was driven by conceptual models. Um, sometimes it was driven by observations. So the, the thing you mentioned in your, in your podcast um, with Chris Bretherton was how the, the stratiform clouds, big cloud decks off the western continents or over the eastern upwelling oceans, how they break up into broken clouds. And depending when and how they break up, it really affects the planetary albedo as a whole. So the question is, how does that work? And then there are different things involved mixing, but another was um, precipitation. So how does precipitation affect the clouds? And there were some simple hypotheses at the time that came out of the University of Washington, which didn't make sense to me. And so I tried to understand how drizzle affects the development of the cloud layer. So that was mostly my um, PhD thesis. And at that time, I was really concerned with how to use models to come up with ideas that we could test in observations. So I, I think that's also been an enduring aspect of the way I think about things, which is not to use models to provide answers, but to use models to tell us how to look at nature differently. And so with the simple models, you know, we had an idea that when you had clouds which precipitated, it would affect the mixing at the cloud top and it would lead the boundary layer to shallow and it would lead to a thinner cloud. But the way that worked wasn't at all clear in these papers. And so I wanted to understand that. So we created a model which more explicitly coupled the dynamics. And what you realized was that actually the, the answers that the simple models provided weren't that wrong. In the end, the effect of the precipitation was to uh, reduce the cloud amount, but it happened through a very different mechanism than it happened in those simple models. So it happened because you would, we, you would partition the cloud layer from the boundary layer below in ways that would weaken the mixing um, at the top of the cloud. And it would um, um, shallow the boundary layer but in the, in the simple models, it just happened in a different way. So we're talking about shallow marine stratocumulus. Yeah, stratocumulus clouds, yeah. And my recollection, correct me if I'm wrong, or if this is an oversimplification, is that up until approximately this time, people thought these clouds basically didn't produce rain. And then it became clear that they did. And I don't remember if that was the field campaigns that you led or whether it happened a little earlier than that. No, I, I, I did so early in my in my postgraduate career at UCLA, then I, I initiated and led this field experiment, also benefiting a lot from the wisdom of a guy named Don Lenshaw at NCAR, um, called mm -hmm. DICOMS. And yeah. ostensibly, that was to use new techniques to measure the entrainment rate, because that was sort of the critical process in the models that determined how they behaved. And we wanted to know what it was, and if it responded to environmental conditions according to certain theories. Just for the non-experts, entrainment is the... Yeah, entrainment is just the... If you think of a, a plume of cigarette smoke, it, it kind of spreads as it moves out. And that spreading is this incorporation of ambient air into the smoke plume through yeah. the turbulence of the smoke plume, and that's entrainment. So it's uh, the, the growing of the, of the turbulent layer by the incorporation of non-turbulent air into it. Um, and in the stratocumulus cloud layer, this is a, a, a layer of clouds which form above the cold oceans, and they kind of grow vertically into the, into the free atmosphere because the cloud layer is very turbulent, and that turbulent layer is trying to expand into the free atmosphere at the same time as the free atmosphere is sort of subsiding and trying to shrink the boundary layer. 
And so yep. how that turbulent mixing process works and what factors control it was something that we didn't really have a good grip on and we didn't really have any measurements of. And so mm -hmm. during DICOMS, we took advantage of new measurement techniques, mostly of dimethyl sulfide, um, fast measurements of ozone and water vapor to, to make the first really believable measurements of entrainment. And we could use that then to constrain the models. And that, that, that those measurements are sort of the benchmark that everyone uses now when they want to test the models mm -hmm. they develop of, of, of stratocumulus clouds. But during that program, we also had a cloud radar, a, a really fascinating guy um, named Gaber Valley at the University of Wyoming. So if you ever have a chance to talk to him, he's, he's full of stories about escaping hungry in the middle of the night. Um, but anyway, he, um, he had a cloud radar, and so we could look down at the clouds when we were flying above them and, and quantify um, for the first time the, the amount of rain that was forming the clouds. And this allowed mm -hmm. me to test some of the hypotheses we had developed as part of my thesis, but it also allowed us to quantify the precipitation. And that yeah. was at the time we saw how all the precipitation also affected the cloud um, macrostructure. So these idea of pockets of open cells came out of that work where we were using the um, cloud radar to um, to measure the, the drizzle, but there's an interesting intersection with Chris Bretherton. If people are interested, because we're we're driving up the mountain a few years before Dicom, um in his little old Honda something or another that chugged away up the hill. Because even back then, Chris was um, fairly frugal about fuel and carbon. And um, <laughs> we were talking about the Dicoms, and and I have to credit Chris because he said, "Well, you know, I was I was telling him about the experiment, what I had in mind," and he said, oh, "I'd try to get a cloud radar." So that stuck in my head, and I went and I got a cloud radar, which was with Gaper Valley, and that led us to be able to, to quantify um, precipitation and its role in these decks of shallow clouds and how that influences their, their macroscopic presentation and how much energy they reflect and so on. Right. And the pockets of open cells has to do with, so these clouds tend to be pretty solid decks. When you look at them from space, it's just like a white, completely yeah. white uh, slab covering the earth. But then they, the pockets of open cells are when they get big holes in them. And I seem to remember that the rain is part of that. You showed that the yeah, the fact yeah, that exactly. these clouds are producing more rain than people thought is part of how they get these holes. Yeah, the holes are associated with rain. And what you found in rain, and that, that also is what I, I found in my thesis, is that, that, that there's different modes for the clouds to be in. One mode is that what we call closed cells, where you have um, mostly the, the air that is going up um, is is responding to, to the radiative cooling that makes the air neighboring it go down. So it's sort of a downward driven circulation that's very well mixed through the boundary layer as a whole. And in these patterns are closed because you kind of have bright white spots kind of rimmed around by the downwelling air, which might be a little bit thinner and darker when you look at it from space. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. looks a bit like a lace pattern, but the, 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 it's filled. So the, the, the big blobs are white and the, 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 the rims are kind of um, um, darker. And you can flip the polarity of that where you see the clouds more at the intersection of the network um, mm -hmm. and the interior uh, are, are dark because you're looking at the dark ocean. So you go from this, what we call from, from um, closed cells to open cells. And mm -hmm. the precipitation does that because it, it, it stabilizes the downdrafts, um, which used to be driving the circulation. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a wonderful and beautiful interaction between um, precipitation and heating, mixing at the cloud at the top, the large scale large in the sense of the boundary layer um, dynamics of, of that flow. Um, so that was, those were the sort of things I, I worked on and contributed to early in my career. So, okay, but wait a second, is that what we were just talking about the DICOMs, that was when you were UCLA already, so maybe we should briefly, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember, did you go, you didn't go straight there from 
No, no. I from from my PhD, I, I went and studied with Chin Ho Meng. She was um, the senior scientist right. at NPAR, who uh, was quite influential. And there, right. I did some of the basic work on just trying to understand what the theories of entrainment were at the time. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand how these models, which we call large eddy simulation, how they represent entrainment, and then also looking at different what we would call closures or simple models of the turbulence, how they would behave, um, and um, and. And that was sort of framing the problem for what we needed to measure later on. So I've spent a fair amount of time doing that. We we began working on trade wind clouds um, at that time, so a little bit deeper convection. And um, you see, Adam, my whole life I've been working my way towards you because I started at this very shallow convection, and then I work trade wind clouds, which is a little deeper convection. And next summer, we're finally going to study deep convection. So this would be really the thing. Well, of course, but when you started, I wasn't doing any kind of convection. I know, no, I, that's right. <laughs> but, but so maybe we're converging your podcast and my my. Um, but, well, the but for your post called deep was, convection. Yeah. It was deep convection, right? So when you worked with Chris, that was that was yes. all the weak temperature gradient yes. came out of trying to understand deeper convection. And yes. models, the same kind of models we're using in GCSS. You were trying to figure out why they always rain the same amount. Um, no matter what you did, you know, when people were prescribing the vertical. Um, well, we knew that. Or, we knew that. The question was just whether we could do anything about it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but and, so, and okay. So, so you spent a... I don't know, a year or two. So I went to Edcar and then I went to, yeah. I, I, at that time, so in Colorado, maybe the German bug in me or whatever. Um, I met a German woman at, yeah. um, when I was studying and um, then I moved to Boulder and we had our first child. And mm -hmm. the thought was before I started at UCLA, it'd be nice to kind of go to Germany for a year. So I applied um, thanks to someone named Ulrike Lohmann, another fascinating person who's at um, ETH and super creative. Um, she's at ETH Zurich and, um, Thanks to her, she kind of set me up with people at the institute I'm at now, the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology. And so I was able to okay. spend a year here thanks to a fellowship from the Humboldt Foundation, um, which kind of All sponsors right. foreign scholars to do a research stay of one or two years. So I did that here in Germany completely. You know, I, I, I hardly I didn't publish a lot I, or but I started lots of things and thought about lots of things that gave me momentum when I went to UCLA and then we had DICOMs and, and I got interested more in the global modeling and I continued the work on, on experimental methods and measurements and things like that. Right. So I know exactly when you went to UCLA, cause I don't know if you remember this or if I can't remember I if we've ever talked about it, but, but I applied for that job and, and interviewed and everything. So they hired you instead of me, which I probably would have done the same if I was them, but no, no, anyhow. I remember it a bit. Well, we already knew each other at that time. I can't remember exactly because we, we met. Then, we met at this. We <laughs> met at this when I was. At, we met at this NCAR workshop, the Advanced Study Program. This workshop on turbulent boundary layers, and we were put together in a group. Um, we had a group yeah. project together, and yeah, I remember um, very so well. I met you. And then I was applying for UCLA, and I looked to see who else was there. And there was you on the seminar list. And I said, Adam, what are you doing on that? And you said, Oh my goodness, we're applying for the same position. And then yeah. I remember at that time that they tried to hire both of us um and no, um, they I weren't able think, to well make i never heard that but okay yeah that was a story i heard um from jim mcwilliams and david and i would say also um uh, you know you, uh, at that time you were yeah uh, there's many things in the decision but i i maybe fit their um their the, the profile they were looking at well, I was I hadn't expected them to take me seriously at all. Actually, I was in my first year of my postdoc. I was shocked that they interviewed me. So it wasn't. Yeah, I I, 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 I had no I, 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 hard feelings from it at all. To, I mean, 
No, no, no. But I think I, I, for a long time, I think people like David Ingen were wondering, ah, did, what if we had chosen Adam? That would be. Oh, like, come yeah. on. No, they <laughs> so, didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. Ask him. You should, you know, in other words, interviewing Jim would be a real interesting thing. He'll, he'll be very terse, but beautiful. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yes, that's true. Yeah, we could, we could. Yeah. Anyway, I so then I, I, could, I, I was, yeah. I, I came to Hamburg and then I went, and then went to UCLA and I was at UCLA for, oh, close to 10 years. Right. Right. And so, yeah, let, I'm trying to remember the evolution during that time. I mean, you certainly kept doing some of the same things and the field campaign, maybe there was a couple of field campaigns. Yeah, some recall. of them came later. We did little ones. The big one, the big one was DICOMs. I got involved. We had these the climate process teams in the US that started. Chris actually again. Yeah, um, Chris yeah. led yeah. one. We had one with Isaac and Chris, those other people who are familiar on to people um on your on your podcast. And um we had one and at that time I was really interested in the aspects of the model hierarchy. So we we're trying to use you know, simplified models without land, global models now, moving to global models and trying to understand the role of um what we call cloud feedbacks, how clouds will change as you warm the earth in ways that either amplify or damp the warming that's caused by some external force like the sun changing or CO2 increasing. And um, that was where um, I, I began thinking about the global modeling. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also got interested in the satellite data. So I kind of rejuvenated this question of the hemispheric symmetry because that, at that time we had a, a reasonably long um, data set of pretty precise measurements of Earth's albedo. And what you find is that the Earth's albedo in the Northern Hemisphere is just undistinguishably different, uh, similar to the, the albedo in the Southern Hemisphere. So even though the Northern Hemisphere is completely different, you know, huge land masses, no polar um, permanent ice cap, uh, it has the same amount of reflected sunlight as the Southern Hemisphere. And we noticed that, you know, it was to, to within measurement error from the satellites over periods of, I think, six or seven, six years or so when we looked at it. Mm -hmm. And that got me interested in what I would say larger questions about what controls Earth's albedo and how that might change um, as you warm the, the planet. And I, I went from sort of a cloud physics, microphysics, droplet microphysics, turbulent mixing, um, radiation to to a, a bit of a larger scale picture of, of what controls the global distribution of clouds and things like Earth's climate sensitivity. Um, and that maybe was a bit of a transition to some of the later stuff. Yeah, I mean, because I'm really interested in how people decide to do what they do and in science, how people choose research questions and agendas. Was that, I mean, to what extent was this conscious? My, my sense is that there was some consciousness behind. In other words, that some of us just have, and I'm sort of in this category sometimes, so I, some of us have short attention spans and we just go to conferences and read and we just get excited about things or we know somebody so we'd start collaborating. But then sometimes there's some amount of strategy like, well, geez, I'd like to get out of this particular area that I'm in because we've solved things well enough or because I you know, want to have a broader um, program. And so people then consciously move to work on other things. And it seemed to, as you describing your, your program be becoming broader in scope and more, more large scale, which is of course, um, allowing I think the field a, was a, a, a more connection going to that way. What's that? You know, so I think, I think the field was a bit going that way because, you know, when you study small scale processes, you're always called on to, to look at the bigger picture. 
The other thing I found is how emotion sort of drives things. Often, a lot of the things I've worked on are because I'm annoyed about the fact that <laughs> it seems like something I should be able to understand, but I can't, you know, or somebody wrote a paper that didn't make sense to me. Um, you know, Brian Mapes was talking about this stuff with Arakawa and forcing and mm -hmm. things like this. Um, but, but people write papers, they get a lot of attention and you just, you know, either you don't understand what the paper says, it doesn't make sense. It seems wrong. Um, right. You know, and, and so this, you're like, ah, I, I think I can understand that. And so some, something kind of captures you a bit emotionally. Um, and, right. and then you, you know, you just kind of bite into it and maybe make a little bit of progress and then off you go. And so I think at least right. I remember the way people were talking about, you know, with the global models, uh, they're talking about cloud feedbacks. I, I remember myself being a bit frustrated about how that discussion was going. And so, mm -hmm. so yeah, that led me into that field. That, yeah. Someone is wrong on the internet. Do you know that comic? I think it's probably no, XKCD, no. you know, the, yeah. the guys up, yeah. you know, super late at night and the <laughs> friend or wife or whoever it is is saying, you know, what are you doing? Like, it's four in the morning, you know, get off the computer, go to, go to sleep. And he's like, but someone's wrong on the internet. He's typing. That's what, that's what randomly steers me through life is, 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 is you know, getting, uh, anyway. well, I think it, you know, I think it happens that, that people you know the the climate problem is very broad in scope and i mean it's a cliche but a true one to say that it involves the interaction of lots of processes that are very themselves they're very intricate and so you can study these processes in great detail but then when you have to combine them all and, and understand the whole picture it's some it can be very very difficult to maintain all that detail um and and of course the climate models embody the kind of you know the compromises that people have to make and so it's a tension in the field that the people who become experts in some particular thing get frustrated at the way that particular thing ends up being talked about and treated by either models or scientists who think about the whole climate problem because they can't capture all that richness so you were one of those process people sort of originally, if I could characterize yeah, you yeah, that that's, way. That's, that's... And then in moving to the broader debate, you have to sort of, I mean, on one level, you can be like, well, people aren't doing it right. And so I know about this process and I'm going to, and I'm going to make it right. But another level, you, a lot of people don't do that because in order to do that, you have to sort of swallow some of the, uh, uh, of the compromises or you can't get yeah. anywhere you know you have to become a global climate person in order to show the global climate people how they're wrong on some level yeah maybe some of that too came when i was at ncar because i interacted with that that the global climate community and and i was trying to take my process understanding and and improve the representation of the stratocumulus in the model and that was where i also understood something um which is that there's many things that we understand fairly well that we can't put in global models. And, and I think people don't, don't, it doesn't make sense to them. They say, well, if you understand it, you can put it in a global model. But it's kind of like um, being asked to make a cake without the right ingredients. So you can know the perfect recipe for the cake, but if you don't have the eggs, you know, then you won't be able to execute your, your recipe. Mm -hmm. And global models are often, often asking you to um, implement recipes without the ingredients. Um, and so you can't, but it's not because we don't understand it. Um, you know, it's just that we don't What's have the, the ingredients eggs. in this and, analogy. What are the eggs? Yeah, for the to, to, yeah, the, the, the ingredient was being able to represent the 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 sharpness of the temperature transition because the mixing uh, at the top of the clouds requires you to, to be able to resolve the processes that happen at that. 
level. I and see. so the only thing you could do, and I could, I did it at the time, and then Chris picked up, and uh, Adrian Locke used the same method: is you can try to reconstruct this situation, fill it in, you know, because you know how it should look like, and you have the other information. But as soon as you do that, it works perfectly for the case that you imagine. But it in a global climate model, it, it can't just work for the case you imagine. It has to work everywhere all the time, always. Um, right. And it ends up breaking in these other places. So then you go into the model and you say, well, okay, if it's not the case I was thinking of, then don't do this, do something else. Um, but you end up with this really, you know, the cake doesn't taste very good at the end um, because you're trying to make up the eggs. Um, and then when you cook the other recipe, you know, you, you, it, it just, <laughs> uh, the analogy is probably spent by now, but, um, well, but, I mean, I think another way of saying it is that understanding, you know, we think we know what we mean by it, but it actually means a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Have you read Sarah Vannon's book on, on climate models? Yet? No, I haven't, but I've, so heard it's really, really good, but one it, of the, so. yeah, one of the things he says is that, you know, people, I don't know how true it is, but that but I think it, it's a fact that gets repeated a lot that in, in um, Arctic indigenous languages, there's a lots of words for snow. You know, this is a, yeah. this is a this become a cliche, but we only have a couple of different, we, we don't have a lot of different words for the different types of uncertainty. You know, there's a million yeah. different ways things can be uncertain. We don't have the language almost to describe them, but yet they're real. The differences are real. And the same is true of understanding, yeah. right? Understanding and uncertainty are just yeah. sides of the same. Yeah thing so it's like you can understand something in one sense and not understand it in another sense and that's just because it's a the word is too uh limited and it's uh, but that's where a little bit too with the understanding there, there was this and it's there's residues of this still there was a sort of a dominant culture in the field um at that time say 15 years ago where the, the thought was that it all came down to building a supermodel. You know, we get all these parameterizations right, we make the models better, we kind of do all of this, and then we will just turn the machine on and um, the model will spit out the answer. And then, you know, the whole paradigm of, of, of CMIP and, and the way people are looking at cloud feedbacks or aerosol forcing or things like that at the time was everyone tries to, you know, make the perfect model and that encompasses all understanding. And then you run the model and you get numbers and um, somehow, those spread of numbers encompass uncertainties, which was, you know, it's, it was a really, in retrospect, a ridiculous program, but it was followed fairly strongly. And I think still some people think like that, but, but less and less people think like that, thankfully. But, well, so you're talking now about the, the way that we use the, the range of different climate model predictions to characterize the uncertainty, like some models yeah. give a higher number, some models give a lower number. And the, you know, and the range in between gives us the uncertainty. Yeah, and that's, I, I, yeah. but everybody knows that's sort of not right because the model, there's no reason the models, I mean, the right answer could not be in any of them or, right. the, you know, that they're not independent and so on, but there isn't, there still isn't a great alternative recipe, right? Because yeah, there is. I mean, I think that's where, so one of the things we did, you know, when I was here, um, and this is in this 2016 paper in Earth's Future, is we said, okay, we want to narrow the range on climate sensitivity. Uh -huh. And, and this came out of when I was involved in the IPCC, uh, when we did the aerosol forcing, you know, was the, 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 the thing isn't, um, to collect the results from the models and look at the spread and fine tune and see if you can narrow the spread. The mm -hmm. question is um, to understand why the models give a particular answer. And mm -hmm. so if you just change it to saying, what's the argument 
rather than what's the answer and collecting answers, um, you, you ask, is that argument plausible? And and I think our field in the in the in the rush to build models and use models in this sort of authoritative way lost a little bit of its um, critical faculty in saying, let's pretend, and that's what we did in the 2016 paper, it's just basic normal scientific practice. You say, let's pretend the climate sensitivity is large. Mm -hmm. What would have to be true? And how likely is that given yeah, all the yeah. evidence we have? And that, that when, you, when you looked at it that way, what you found, and then Steve Sherwood um, carried that program forward. He was part of the 2016 paper too, and that came out of a workshop that we held. Um, carried that forward beautifully with a big community of people, and that led the climate sensitivity to be reduced by uh, the uncertainty, quote, um, or confidence in the climate sensitivity to be increased by uh, um, the confidence intervals to be reduced by a factor of two. You know, So we're much more confident in a range of climate sensitivities in the last version of the IPCC. But the irony is, if we hadn't have done that, if we had carried that old research program forward, the climate uncertainty would have grown by about 50%. Because, you know, right. what we did was we, we didn't pay attention to the models anymore. Um, and we tried to reason. And I think every time we do that, where we try to reason our way through a problem, and ask what would have to, you know, this, this arguing with nature, like we started out with, that's always much more fruitful. Um, and so we began arguing rather than, you know, trying to build, um, you know, these, 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 you know, perfect models that, that we would then try to convince people to believe in. So after 10 years at UCLA, where you started doing global climate things, in addition to the more smaller scale process things that you'd been doing before, you moved to Hamburg and become head of the lab there at the Max Planck Institute. At still a pretty young age, actually. I don't, wait, as I yeah, recall, I, was, I don't know. That would have been have 2008, so I would have been 42. 42, yeah. Um, to become head of the this lab, which is a climate modeling lab, pretty much, right? So you're in charge of yeah. now the development and maintenance and operation of one of the models in the CMIP ensemble. I guess the lab does other things, but that seems to be the big thing that it does, right? Well, you know, it was. You know, in the beginning, the, the, it has the whole history from Hasselman, which stochastic climate models, wave-wave mm. interactions. Um, okay, he the, was there, the, I guess. The SAR and okay. things like that. Yeah, he, he he started it. And that, and then, you know, they, they did a lot of the biogeochemistry. And, and they developed the models a little bit because he needed the models for his detection attribution program. So the the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the Nobel Prize work was for the detection problem. You know, it's really being able to say Manabe's right um, in terms of the theory and to to do that problem, it's a signal to noise problem. He needed models, and so they built up the models. But the lab right. was always very at the forefront of the developing the coupled models. So when you look at yep. the history of coupled modeling, there are sort of three or four labs which stand out in that history, and, and it's certainly GFDL, um, it's it's MPI, it's the Med Office um, in the UK with John Mitchell, it's the group um, in LMD in Paris, mm -hmm. and then to some extent NCAR as well. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it, it has this, this climate modeling pedigree. So of all the early models, the first, you know, the flux uncorrected models, the first carbon coupled models. Um, so the lab has a long history of pioneering model development um, and pushing the field forward and, and developing new models to help us understand basic questions. Um, so. Right. And so do you, what was your motivations in making this move and were they right in hindsight? I mean, has it been 
played out differently than you whatever reasons uh, you had for you know so people have to understand the being the head of a lab being the head of the lab or a director in the Max Planck Society is really quite different than being the, the director of um, uh, most of the US labs. I know when you're a director, you actually manage a facility for mm-hmm. someone. And the idea of the Max Planck Society is the lab is is, is a vehicle for, for the director to execute their research vision. I think the last time that was true was when Smagorinsky was running GFDL and when Francis was running, Francis Bretherton was running NCAR. I mean, then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the vision of the director was really fundamental. Maybe Jerry Malman too at, at GFDL, I don't know. But the, the vision of the director was what moved the lab forward. And in the modern era, at least in the United States, the role of a lab director is really a lab manager because they manage it for a community or for a bigger agency or for someone. So the Max Planck still has this idea of kind of being a medium scale enterprise where they hire directors um, who want to do something which needs a certain scale of effort that you can't sustain as a university professor. So so that made the position attractive because it was a position where you could you could follow a, you know, a, a research program in the sense of sort of Lakatos, the, 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 the philosopher of, of this kind of long-term idea of, of trying to solve big questions. Um, so you could do that here. So that, that was attractive. Um, my wife was German. She was actually, um, I think she had the hardest time moving back to Germany, um, people, because you were away <laughs> from a country for 17 years. Um, but it, 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 there was a certain feeling and you have to remember at that time too, we were in the second round of the Gulf, you know, that, that was the, 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 the Iraq war. Um, yeah. and for many, a lot of people, that was a pretty disturbing period because you realized that, um, the whole run up to the war. I mean, it was just really clear that that truth didn't matter, um, and and that's although, a hard thing. Although as a we had no idea, though. I mean, how much less it could matter. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's I only know. worse it's, now. There, there's, yeah, there, <laughs> easy, there is, I mean, looking there back on it, it, you know, it, it, yeah. Anyway, it's painful to think about. Yeah, it. I got it. I got. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're right, but but at that time that. Um, it opened my eyes to maybe maybe there's other places to live. Um, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it, it, it lessened my attachment to my local environment. Although UCLA was great, I mean, and the colleagues I had at UCLA were, were really terrific. So I still think back of that quite fondly. Um, yeah, we had kids, and um, kids growing up in Los Angeles grow up differently than they grow up in in Hamburg. Just the social environment. Europe has a much uh, better express public sphere. Um, so there's a lot more public infrastructure and, and public infrastructure is great for, um, uh, yeah. young people and old people. And what, what ages were they when you moved? I can't remember. 10. Or so they or were, um, 2008. So one would have been, um, um, 11 and nine, eight and 10, um, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. And so they're right at that break in the German school system. So it was a good time. And we had spent a year in, Germany as in Berlin on sabbatical in 2007 and um, we enjoyed our time there and so um, the professional opportunity was great Uh, the sort of uh, meta situation in the United States was a bit troubling and for family reasons it seemed like it would work well and so um, yeah so so but what was the vision you wanted to execute at MPI you said that you were well with MPI I had access vision well, there was two things. One is I had access to experimental facilities so I could make measurements long-term in ways oh, okay. that I couldn't imagine doing at UCLA. So I have mm-hmm. access to an aircraft that I can use and we've used okay. very effectively over the last years right. um, to, to make measurements. 
Um, I could set up, you know, I'd, I'd wanted to set up trade wind clouds in the meantime, partly because of this aqua planet work, but mostly because of work from um, Sandrine in, in Paris, Sandrine Bonny. Sandrine Bonny, um, yeah. The attention had turned to trade wind clouds, and we had no measurements of them. So I'd been trying to set up an observatory, and coming to MPI, we could actually set up a cloud observatory, which we've been running since about 2010 on the island of Barbados in, in cooperation with them. So advanced remote sensing just to make yeah. very long-term measurements of trade cumulus. And, and this, you know, paid back um, itself very well in some results that came out uh, um, last year. But I could set up this experimental facility on the one hand, and the other hand, I could link it to a modeling program. Mm -hmm. And that to really understand the role of clouds and moist processes in the climate system in ways that um, I just couldn't imagine doing at UCLA. Um, mm -hmm. So that was really attractive. And um, that has been the, the the program that we've been following. One is, you know, to work our way through on the, the trade cumulus problem. How do these broken cloud fields away from the stratocumulus, how cloudy are they? What controls their cloud amount? And do they change a lot with warming? And that, that had a large observational component, which we used to constrain the models. And then the further development of the models that allow us to kind of sharpen our ideas so we know what to measure next time to sort of move ourselves step by step a bit forward in terms of how we how we look at the climate system. So you've been in this job for, I don't know, 15 years or something. Yeah. So we, we can't cover all the, and you know, it's a whole lab. You're directing, yeah. doing a lot of things. So we can't cover everything. But is there anything, before we get to the most recent things, do you, is there anything you want to say to characterize this time and the different, any new, any other directions you want to bring up? No, I think, I think, I mean, it, it's it, the things that we could do, especially with the combination of the modeling and, and, and measurements have been really special. Um, and I, I think now we have a pretty good idea in large part because of some of the measurement techniques that we developed, we have a, a, a we're pretty confident that, that trade wind clouds aren't the joker that we thought they might be in global warming. So there was a paper from a former PhD student here who then went to LMD or postdoc. I mean, she was a PhD student with me and Louisa Nyans, and then she worked yeah, at Sandrine yeah. as a postdoc. And, and the paper on the trade wind cumulus feedback, and there's other work with a recent PhD student that came out of this whole measurement program, which I think is really kind of moved us a big step forward in terms of um, understanding how the trade wind clouds um, don't respond to warming. Um, so they don't respond to warming in a way that would lead to um, uh, 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 a large desiccation of the cloud layer, which is what some models were predicting, which would amplify mm. the warming. So so we're kind of proud of that program. And um, lately, we're, we've been excited about our ability to, to, to kind of advance the modeling to, to begin looking at wholly new scales of motion in a way that kind of fills in um, fills in a lot of the missing energy in the climate system. So um, um, kind of allows us to kind of look at the climate systems in ways that we just couldn't look at before. So so developing these um, new modeling techniques, mostly around computing, um, has been kind of exciting recently. So so what uh, what are the new techniques? I mean, the, 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 just if you can if you can simulate the Earth on a big enough computer, you can. You know, <laughs> Brian Mapes was talking about the scale interactions, um, right. scales interacting with scales, small scales and big scales, and forever the climate problem has been posed of one of large scales um, evolving under their dynamics, being nudged by the collective effect of the small scales, 
Yes. And missing from the whole narrative is the intermediate scales, which contain, um, in some ways, the, 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 the bulk of the energy, especially the bulk of the heat transport um, um, in the atmosphere. Hmm. And so um, that's just gone. I mean, there were no intermediate scales. And there was this, in, in retrospect, preposterous assumption that somehow the small scales um, you could represent uh, as unorganized um, randomly distributed response to the large scales and that would allow the climate system to evolve in 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 realistic ways in a dynamic sense not in a thermodynamic sense um, and um, and we've seen that's not the case you know models are very sensitive to the treatment of how you couple the small and large scales mm. and you have all of these intermediate scales um, and and what do they do? I mean, the intermediate scales are all the things that people know about weather. I mean, there are windstorms, there are thunderstorms, there are tropical cyclones, there are sea breezes, there are mountain valley winds, there are catabatic right. flows off glaciers, there are ocean eddies. There's all of this richness of uh, energetic scales in between the large and the small scales, which were just absent from the whole climate right. discussion. And if the climate models had been simulating um, the climate in a way that's satisfactory to look at sort of changes in circulation, then maybe you'd say that's okay. You know, maybe these intermediate scales don't really matter and the small scales are really, you know, um, as Brian didn't like people saying, slaved to the large scales. But, um, but there's reason to believe that that paradigm doesn't work. Um, right. And a lot of the assumptions of that paradigm we just know are wrong, but we persisted with it because we didn't have a choice, you know. So, yeah. Um, so, just all to, we I could mean, do. Just just yeah. to put this in a little more concrete terms, so what you're talking about here is that the traditional climate models have relatively low horizontal resolution and all the stuff they don't resolve is parameterized, meaning represented in some semi-empirical, semi-theoretical way um, as a function of the large scales. That's the quote-unquote slave, yeah. slaving. Yeah. And the yeah. intermediate scales that you're talking about now are what you get when you increase the horizontal resolution so that you, you still have to parameterize something. You're maybe not fully capturing all the stuff that was parameterized before on the grid now, but you're capturing more stuff like the mountains start to look right and the, you know, coastlines yeah. start to look right. And, and you can get at least the big thunderstorms can be simulated directly with physics as opposed to parameterized. That's what you're talking about, right? Just having a bigger yeah, computer and going to higher right. resolution. You get, you, get, you get a much richer range of scale interactions. And in a way, you, 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 you set the small scales free to kind of do what they want to do and interact with their, you know, it, 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 scales tend to communicate locally in, 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 in scale space so that small scales tend to have the strongest influence on the next bigger scale. The next bigger scale tends to have the um, biggest influence on the next bigger scale. So this this way that information is communicated in the climate system goes scale by scale. So little things communicate with bigger things, which communicate with bigger things, and vice versa. Bigger things communicate with slightly smaller things, and they communicate. And so you have flows of energy that go both way through all these scales. And the paradigm that people had used in climate modeling is, oh, we can short circuit all that, and we can make the, the small scale subservient to the large scales. And that works to a certain degree. We've learned, don't get me wrong, I mean, when you do that, in, and you build a model, you can learn a lot. And we've done that now for 30 or 40 years, and we've learned a lot. But that, that program is sort of petered out, I think, um, in terms of uh, there's probably still things you can, you can learn, um, I'm, I'm certain. But people have been using that sort of paradigm for 30 or 40 years, 
and it's pretty well tapped, you know, so you have to be especially clever, you know, to do creative novel things working in yeah. that old paradigm. And so now when you say, let's, let's relax that, let's allow all of the intermediate scales to, to freely participate. Um, it allows you to look at the climate system in new ways. And so for people who aren't immensely clever, there's a, there's a better chance that we'll find, um, I'll put myself in that category that we'll find new things. Um, and so that makes it really fun um, because you really feel like you're, you're seeing the climate system with a, a new, a new right. lens, you know? So, but you're just talking, you're talking about just going to higher resolution with more computer power or, and, or yeah, yeah. Or so, or you know, you're, you're you know, people, to you how to use the computers. Exactly. You know, so the, the critics would say, ah, you know, it's just brute force. It, but it's a funny thing to call solving the laws of physics brute force. <laughs> you know, it's just actually taking the laws seriously and, and not trying to shortchange them. So, okay, it'd be nice if we were more clever and there was some aggregate theory, but there's no evidence that there is one. So why not try to understand if we, if we solve the equations as well as we can and keep trying to solve them better and better, what they're trying to tell us. Um, and um, rather than trying to come up with an effective theory, that'd be nice, but, but, but I don't think there's been any, any evidence that, that um, that's, gets us very far, um, is that you know, for particular questions, we can solve the laws of physics and, and develop an intuition for um, how things behave. Um, so, Yeah, so okay, so we can get in a minute to all the pros and cons of, of high-resolution global modeling, but just to be on the pro side, uh, to add a couple things, I mean, in the meantime, during this time that you've been working at the Max Planck Institute and before that, apart from the field of climate modeling in the immediately adjacent field of weather prediction, it's, you know, resolution has, there's no question it has helped, right? I mean, that, yeah. that, that just, I mean, it's still not quite brute force in that every time you increase the resolution, you have to change some things and learn how to do some things and data assimilation is not trivial and all of that. But nonetheless, going to higher resolution clearly has made forecasts better in some cases in ways that weren't, it wasn't obvious that it was because you go to a resolution where you're still not quite resolving the thing correctly that you think is happening in the atmosphere, but yet it still gives a better forecast. Um, yeah. You, know, you, you sort of know and think thought you knew intellectually that you would have to go to X resolution to really represent some particular kind of storm. But when you only go to not that high resolution, it still helps, helps the forecast. There's been some degree of just empirical experience and also the high resolution yeah, global yeah. climate modeling to the extent that it's happened since, I don't know, the early two thousands, um, you know, well before it was when high resolution meant, you know, 25 or 50 kilometers, um, grid spacing, you know, well before that became routine in CMIP and so on, it it started making the hurricanes look better, for example, when the hurricane people would have told you, oh, that's not enough resolution to do a good hurricane. And it, it sort of isn't, but yet we've learned a lot of things about hurricanes and climate from that. Yeah. So I don't know. Those are the, those are some of the, the, the there's intellectual arguments in favor of high resolution. And then to some extent there, there's just experience that it has yeah, I think there's, but it hasn't you know, helped with everything it, though. I mean, there's other no, things. No, no, the people, yeah, but people, people, I, I notice that sometimes people, if you push a new technique, then the, the tendency is you say, ah, if we do this, this will help with this, 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 and this. Um, so you list four things or something. And, and then people will say, yeah, but it won't help with that. 
And you're like, yeah, <laughs> it won't help with that. Um, but it, it doesn't solve everything, but it does solve some things. And so if you have a technique that can solve a large number of your problems or a, you know, a useful number of your problems, then um, it, 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 of course it's not going to solve every problem. And I can make a long list of problems it doesn't solve. Yeah. Um, as, but I'm more focused on the ones it does solve because um, it's the only way to solve those ones that I really know of. Yeah. Okay. So um, I feel like this is the right yeah. time to start talking about Eve, which I know hmm. you want to do. And I think we should. So, um, cause this is about not only global hair resolution modeling, but that's certainly a big part of it. So that this yeah, is so the thing Eve that you've been leading bit... over the last, uh, couple of years, maybe you want to say what it is and how it yeah. comes out of this. So Eve, we call it earth virtualization engines and it's, one should make a break here because up until now we've been talking about research um, and yep. research is what we do to try to um, advance knowledge. We want to understand how things work. And like we said, research is really a hard slog um, and it involves. Did we say that? Um, using. Hmm? Did we say that? The research. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, but you, you work for a long time and, and you make small steps, um, right? You know, sometimes they're, they're real steps. You know, you really look at the world different. You understand things differently. But, um, you know, you, you really have to, because it's science, you know, you go through things critically. You do it this way, you do it that way. People yeah. criticize it. You look for the evidence there. You do the field of program there. It takes five years to build a you know, measurement technique. And you, you do that. And then, you, 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 you know, you come up with this step forward in knowledge. Um, and it's great. Um, and that's what research has to do. But because it, it's like that, it has to be selective about the problems where it really, you know, where do we really need to know something better? Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum is what we've seen during our careers is we've seen this emergence of a need for climate, let's call it service, um, climate information, where people, of course, they'd love to have, you know, a detailed understanding of how the, you know, seasonal patterns of precipitation will shift and, you know, be rock solid so that they can plan their lives perfectly. But they'd also be happy to have a little bit more intuition um, for what will happen in the future um, for doing this versus that. Um, so mm -hmm. they, 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 you know, people will, you know, would prefer to have knowledge, but information is pretty useful. Um, and if you think about people adapting to a warming world, they want information on the scales on which they have agency or on which they, they act. Um, mm -hmm. and on the scales, um, which, um, you know, where you see the, where you see the tangible effects of the warming rather than the theoretical effects of the warming. So I think you're kind of wet today in New York from what I was looking like. It, it was rained. Not me personally, because I stayed inside and didn't go okay. to Lamont, which I was. But I read it. So you had about six inches of rain. So what, you know, what is that? 15 centimeters of rain. Yeah. Um, in, um, since, you know, in the, in the last 12 hours or something like that. And there's all this flooding. Yeah. So, you know, this comes up with real practical questions. You know, how do you redesign the New York sewer system, you know, given that the world's going to be two degrees warmer, um, mm -hmm. and you know, what's going to happen to the Gulf stream meanders and how will that affect, you know, the, the patterns of weather. And for that, you need information on scales you know, that, that are relevant to that sort of planning. If you're planning water resources, you need to manage things on the watershed scale. And so as we develop these high resolution models, because they're cool and help us understand how scales interact, they also um, include a lot more physics. So we expect them to be more, um, more, more physical. Um, they, they, they also operate on the scale that people want the information at, you know, so the, the, at the scale of the impacts. 
And they also operate on a scale that we observe. You know, one of the problems we have with the existing models is that they don't really work in terms of observables. They, they, they simulate the interaction between statistical quantities that we don't observe directly. Um, mm -hmm. And it makes it really a, a large disconnect between how people observe the world and how people model the world because they work in very different languages. And so when you move to the same scales that you observe, you, you enormously increase the, the cross-section between the observational community and the modeling community. And so another nice thing about these, um, these models working on these scales is that they, 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 they valorize observations in ways that um, other models um, don't. So the question is, how could, we, how could we satisfy the societal need for information, the ability to use observations better with these new tools? Um, and we won't do it, the thinking is going, by continuing to do this as a research activity. Um, so mm. the, the, the claim with Eve is that the, the science has matured, that we need to take the tools that we've developed to answer scientific questions and apply them in a professional way, um, in an operational way, like we apply weather models, to, to try to underpin or undergird the information provision for society with the best possible tools that we have. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one thought of Eve. Um, and the other thought is if we're going to build this new way of doing things, we should also incorporate all the lessons that we, we've learned as we've gone about things in the old ways. And I think one of the lessons that, that we've learned and you've been very eloquent about is that um, it's not just that we have a deficit of information. I mean, that's true, we do. But where we also see, and probably the larger deficit, is in our ability to communicate that information um, in ways that, that make people want to act on it and, 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 and in ways that people should, that we'd be happy if they act on it. Um, mm. So how do, you, how do you, if you're going to build a sort of a climate information system, how would you do it in a way that builds on all the lessons that we've learned in the past to provide the type of information that you that, that people need um, and provide it in a way that um, makes them want to use it. And so Eve has really been about engaging the community in a dialogue to say, how should we do this? Um, we, 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 we know there's this tremendous need, both on, on making information that we have um, come home, you know, meet its target. And the other is, 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 improving the quality of the information. Um, and, and so how should we do that? And I think the, the, the upshot is it's really clear that we need to take advantage of high-performance computing. We see AI has this tremendous ability to, to make, you know, the thing that's, that's remarkable about AI is really its ability to put vast amounts of information at people's fingertips, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. um, really efficiently. Um, yeah. It might be fuzzy. It might be... Um, so between high-performance computing, AI, and, um, and then building institutions which engage the people who are going to use the information and make the institutions responsive to the people who are going to use the information, there's a real opportunity to do something special here, and Eve tries to capitalize on that. Um, so. Okay, so that, that was – but can we be a little more specific and concrete about – because that was sort of vision, vision statement Yeah, yeah. what the problem is, but – like what specifically are we talking about doing here? Yeah, that, that, so we had this meeting, um, which you know about. Um, you were there in Berlin, yeah. And we we came up with this idea that really what we want to do is we want to fill a data space um, 
with kilometer scale um, projections of possible futures um, and possible means based on scenario A, B, C, or D um, um, with model A, B, C, or D. Um, so we fill this data, this data space and we open that data space through a sort of digital commons um, to the existing community of, 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 of users and new communities of users to um, in a, essentially mine it for the, its information content in a way that, that isn't a research activity, but it's driven by user needs. So we would do this through you know, three to five centers that we would have you know, in different places of the world, depending on, on how people want to come together, that would involve elements of capacity building. So we engage the people who need the information in creating the information, not that it's a, you know, a top-down thing where we just, you know, have one modeling center that delivers information for all. But the, the idea is really on a bottom-up level is to engage new communities and collectively work together to, to create the models, to use the machines that exist that we're not using now to fill this data space and then create the capacity for people to to work in that data space to extract the information that they need. So Eve is really about enabling the community to um, use new sources, bring together new sources of information in ways that respond to their needs, and to do that as a professional activity, you know, not as a sort of a, a, a byproduct of the knowledge industry, but um, but really talk about a, a information provision from. Okay, so so let me see if I can summarize what I think yeah. are the key <laughs> elements of it. I mean, just to give a context, I mean, I I was not one of the originators of this, but I got involved. You got me involved in it by whatever means um, uh, over the last some I don't know year or something. And so I went to this Berlin meeting, but so I'm so that's how I I sort of know a lot of what you're saying. But I'm going to try to capture what yeah. I think are the essential elements of of what the v vision has become so first of all an international collaboration um you know something that lies outside of any single country's government uh and then global high resolution climate models are the key sort of at the core of it science wise and then <clears throat> um that the notion of uh, 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 uh these this being done operationally for climate projections on out to sort of decadal timescales for um, maybe not exclusively for adaptation, but I see that as the biggest use case and that's how you've been talking about it in the last few minutes. And um, this information being generated and provided by professionals, I mean, people whose job definition is not scientific research, as you're saying, it's a it's an operational thing, more analogous to weather prediction, although quite different than weather prediction in detail. And then um, AI, to distinguish this, as I understand it, from some other efforts um, that are out there now, the AI is not so much necessarily going to be embedded in the global scale kilometer models themselves, although that could happen, but that's not the main use that, that in what you, that's implicit in what you've been saying, but rather the AI is part of the information provision. So to make it easier to give the information to lots and lots of people who will have different needs. You can't do that on a very large global scale exclusively with sort of hand in hand human co-production, uh, but rather AI can help to scale it. So are those, yeah. is that a fair summary of the elements? <laughs> it's a great summary. I think, um, yeah. 
I don't think I, you know, maybe, maybe the only thing I would add is that this aspect of um, capacity development was capacity very important. Yes. Um, yeah, for, for, for many people in the sense that it's a really, it's, it's a real chance to engage new communities, um, uh, communities with underdeveloped capacity in the, in the actual creation of the information, not just in its uptake. And, and it has to do that because if we want these communities to use the information, um, they they need to be part of creating it. You know, we we've learned that. Um, so, right. So, you know, you said at the beginning that we should try to have, um, you know, disagree more, and 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 I should be more challenging. So, I want to try to represent because I think this is still Eve is still there's a lot of people in the community who are at least uncomfortable with it. Some who are outright hostile, <clears throat> and so. The Berlin meeting was super productive. We had a lot of uh, discussions about it, and and um, I was particularly satisfied by the fact that it, a lot of it seemed to be a week long. A lot of the week was about climate services. Really, I mean, how do you how do you help people use climate information? How do you produce it in a way that makes it usable? But that said, I think I think to make this as useful as it can be for the whole audience it would be i, I want to try to represent some of the yeah, go for counter arguments yeah, yeah, as best as it, I can. it would be good yeah they, they'd be i good want to, to say know. what Sometimes i think the don't tell me yeah well i think you know everything i'm going to say i, I you know I'm, I'm going to try to represent the counter arguments whether or not whether or not regardless of how strongly i might agree or disagree with yeah them. go go for it um yeah. so it's like debate club or whatever so uh yeah. but i never did that so <laughs> i don't think so i mean one one i think I don't know whether I should list them all and have you respond. Maybe I should try to list them all and then we can take them one by one. I mean, I think one thing that just freaks people out is the cost because we're definitely, we don't have to get into the exact numbers. It's all sort of ballpark, but we're definitely talking billions of dollars and over some number of years and, um, and very large human resource investment. And I think that just makes a lot of people in the climate science community really, really uneasy because, um, there's the sense that this is at the end of the day a zero sum game. I mean, in other words, I think a lot of people would think all of this is a great idea if it was cheap. I mean, how could, you know, if, if, if higher resolution modeling was cheap, nobody could say you can't do it. I mean, obviously we all know that it's more accurate to solve the equations at higher resolution than lower. How could you be against that? But yeah. people's objections don't, aren't really about that. They're about, is it the most efficient use of the resources compared to other ways you could spend it bigger ensemble? So it's the, the I think the cost makes people feel that it's going to suck the oxygen out of the room for other labs other climate science activities in their respective countries or or internationally so that's one just and, and you know yeah. reducing the number of of models in the uh, in the initial discussions sound kind of like one model so that's one set of things i don't know should we take them one at a time or should i or should yeah I maybe we do one at a time just okay I mean, do that because one. the cost one um you know it can't be a zero-sum game uh, it wouldn't even work um because there's no way you could sustain this sort of infrastructure without having a vibrant research com community if you if you if you were providing these sorts of climate information what it what it does is it also shows the limits of our knowledge and so the knowledge community which is what we are the research community is in a way activated because you know as you run these models on this scale and we see this all the time in in weather forecasting um a weather bust is what drives the um you know you wrote the book on sandy and um and you hey, look book, what that yeah. did for the yeah the book <laughs> um, i still remember the the, the 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 bass tones of the mjo from that book i love that line um but um and um you know so so we see this in the weather service you know did, did starting a weather service kind of suck 
the 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 money out of research in weather and um right right i think the evidence is is when you create services it actually increases the demand it doesn't decrease the demand and it can't be a zero sum game and it won't be a zero sum game right so the argument so i mean you you can have that fear and they'll, you know you can't you can give my argument people can believe it or not right in the end you only see it in the end you know so um yeah um so people might still want to keep believing that it will suck all the money out of that but um but but then the other question is yeah um i i just don't think there's a lot of evidence in in favor of that fear right i mean yeah so i think it it comes down to a question of how it's going to be paid for if it happens and that we don't yeah. know yet right and I mean, uh, t talking about money you know it's it seems a lot of money when people think on their narrow you know, lab-based national levels. Um, and so really yes. what it's asking people to do is cooperate. And it, like you said at the beginning, it's about an international cooperation. And then the scale isn't unusual, you know? So if you look at other fields, they do this all the time. You know, if you ask what it, what it takes to support the European Southern Observatory or, you know, the, the telescope programs of the astronomers to give them the instruments they need just for their research. Here we're actually talking about for, for operations. If you look at the sort of... Um, scale of in Europe, we have the European Electrobiology Lab. There's there's CERN, there's ITER, um, and these are these are just research projects. And here we're yeah. talking, yeah. So I, I think um, it, it's a lot of money when people think about it in terms of their lab budget, but they it's not a lot of money when you think about it in terms of the scope of the problem that we're talking about, and 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 a, as a form of international cooperation. What is it? One percent of the the hope for the green fund is the green fund supposed to be a hundred billion or something like this? And yeah, it's um, right. But it's, I mean, so it's, it's really so clearly it's true that in, you know major new initiatives can can draw new money into fields and don't have to be harmful yeah. i mean at the end of the day this is only going to be resolved by seeing what happens if anything and who funds it and how. exactly I mean, and and I, the key would be to articulate it right that this you know the other thing in the way we've articulated eve is it it isn't meant to replace things um you know it wouldn't work eve we could do all of the things we'd have the whole simulations but if we didn't have the existing climate service community um to actually harvest the data through all their techniques because it's not like you know Ninety people in a in a in a in a in a lab in 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 South Korea are going to be delivering all the information. To everyone, what we need to do is they need to develop the infrastructure that allows people to go there and yeah. compute the information that they need or to train the tools that they need. And so it just wouldn't even it couldn't even be successful if it starved the research and service community because it it it's supposed to empower them and enable them and i think right. that's really clear in the way it's structured so i, I think that's yeah it, it it just can't do that because if it did do that it would be kind of um destroy itself the right. idea okay so then another argument is well maybe this isn't how it's usually said but maybe try to say this let me try to say this one how i think it should be said um which is not i mean sometimes it's said in different ways but so the idea is to use global high resolution models at the core of a, 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 an operational activity so we you've defined it as not a research activity but so far the high resolution models to the extent that this has been done um which you know is not hasn't been done nearly on the scale that is being proposed for eve but it has there have been some forays into it i mean the japanese started with your simulator you know already 15 years ago or something maybe 
and um, it hasn't really. I mean, it's done a lot of interesting and exciting things, but it hasn't solved all the problems that the lower resolution models had. I mean, the higher resolution models still have big biases and and so on. Yeah. And so, I guess the way I would say this critique is that the high resolution modeling still has to be a research effort, at least at the beginning. I mean, there has to be a research effort at the core of it, because at this point, the notion that the high resolution models are going to be better is mostly a hypothesis. I mean, you talked about the information at the scale that people want it, but we wouldn't really claim that high res even a, high a kilometer scale model is going to really be accurate at the kilometer scale. I mean, we know the features in the cir atmospheric circulation are going to look better, yeah. but it's not as though the projection of the difference between New York and New Jersey is going to be meaningful, except in as much as you resolve the coasts and mountains, which is which is actually a but big, let's, let's a big take... important thing. But but anyway, just as so, I'm getting yeah, yeah. on the details. But just can you just talk about the the tension there between yeah, you know yeah. high resolution so what seems we like a good is... way to solve the problem, but we still have to show that it solves it before we can really operationalize it in some sense, right? Um, yes and no. Um, so the um, Let's take let's take the devil's advocate position and let's pretend that the high resolution doesn't do anything better. Um, yeah. It has all of the same biases as the yeah. low resolution. Let's pretend that's true. We know it's not, and I'll get to that in a second. But let's right. just pretend that's um, so. Um, it's still much better than what we do because right now, if you look, what we do is we regionally downscale um, yeah. these low resolution models to this resolution where yeah. we can afford it, which is normally over the rich countries. So we're doing this regional downscaling anyway, and we tend to do it in ways which people know are flawed. And we tend to do it only over places where they have enough money to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's tremendously inefficient. So it, at the very, very worst, it's a consistent regional downscaling of the global circulation. So even right. if nothing got better, and in that way, from a compute point of view, from a consistency point of view, from a data sharing point of view, it homogenizes a system which would just make all of what we already do just much more powerful and much more useful and much more inclusive, because we wouldn't just be regionally downscaling over Switzerland or Germany or the UK or the US. Um, but it would be happening everywhere for everyone in a consistent way that's also consistent with the large scales. So, so just as a regional downscaling, it's, you know, um, it's worth it, I think. Um, because we we do that already, and then the contention is that it wouldn't be any um, better. Is is it, it's there's uh, when people say that what they are really saying is that not everything is better, um, and of course that's true. I mean, and I can talk about the, the 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 things that aren't, but there are you know there are things that we know from all the research. The real pioneers on the atmosphere side have been the Japanese. The 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 the. You know, one of the one of the big biases in in models of the atmosphere are tropical variability, huge impact. You know that feel very well. You know, with the um, MGO, PCSO, um, um, the, the the position of convection in the in the warm pool region, and um, um, the Japanese now have have shown that if you do a proper treatment of the interaction of the convection and the microphysics, you can represent both the mean structure of the tropical climate and its variability in ways that I've never seen a model do before. Mm -hmm. So on that really hard problem, you don't get it for free. You have to work on it. So there's a research right. effort. It involves coupling with the microphysics interpretants. But um, uh, um, the, out of the University of Tokyo group, um, I always pr pronounce um, Daisuke's last name wrong, 
Tataska. He'll kill me for that. Um, Well, no, he's much too kind. But wonderful simulations with Nikon. Um, And I think a lot of of us have the hope that we can do this with the other models. But even without all of that work, you get a lot of great things for free. You get the land sea breezes. you You get the diurnal cycle. You get the movement of the precipitation over land. You get the land sea ratio of precipitation. All these things that we've been struggling for really quite a long time to get right. Um, there's a lot of things that just emerge that are right. Not everything. And some of the things that we don't get right for free are important. And you're absolutely right that this, this needs a major research effort. But that's why for the research community, this is really, you know, this is, this is a great research program because there's, it, it allows us to focus on the things that we have to get better. So it narrows the scope of the problems. And so for a knowledge community, that's, that's, that's great because then we say, okay, we have, moderately resolved deep convection the shallow convection looks you know like a caricature of how it really should look like but we have the at least uh, the ingredients that i talked about before are starting to appear in the kitchen that we can work with and and make things better so so for sure it's not just uh you know put the model on the computer run the model deliver information to society it's really part of a dynamic system that has to engage the research community and all of its talents it will create new research problems but that's also why I kind of find it exciting because it really creates, as a researcher, um, whole new research agendas, which I think are um, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But it, but what you're saying now is it isn't as simple as just operationalizing things that are. No, no, no. But done. even yeah. when you look at weather forecasting, it wasn't it wasn't like that, right? And so one of the things people right. there's this tendency in our community that we say, well, you know, the information is not perfect, so should, we shouldn't give it out, and. And I'm really a believer in the fact that information gets better because people use it. So we see yeah, how yeah. they use it and the yeah. way they use it, and then we improve it. And so it's really important to develop this sort of service part of our field so that begin, people begin using it, we see the problems, and we create a dynamic where we have a nice balance between the research community doing the research to make the important things better and the operational community using that to try to meet the needs of society. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm in you know rooms where I'm end up in the position of having to defend Eve. Um, and I hear these Sorry things. about what that. I, what <laughs> I say is sim- similar to what, uh, and I'm sure I don't do it as, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't do it as strongly as you do, but I, but I, when I'm called on to do it, I say some of the same things you said, but in maybe slightly different ways. I say the, first of all, I say the, the, rather than, I, first, I, I think the argument that we have to give people information on the scale that they want it is a little slippery because i mean you mentioned sea breezes and stuff like that i mean where the circulation you know where the the meteorology is controlled by the by the boundary conditions by coastlines and mountains and things there i think the resolution immediately brings benefits but when it where that's not the case it's not really obvious that even kilometer scale modeling is going to give information that's truly meaningful at the kilometer scale in the way that users a lot of users think they mean when they say that but i think the more the more compelling argument is that well but at that scale you're resolving deep convection and that might clean up some of the large-scale biases um and make the whole answer better on the global scale and that even that hasn't been proven at the level we've liked but i think that's reasonable it's reasonable to hope that because we know that we know enough to know that resolving deep convection is better than parameterizing it. And that's what you really, that's the qualitative sort of step change in the model when you go to this resolution is that you're not. Yeah, but also the ocean, anymore. you know, like. And also the ocean. But then the other thing I, I 
Say, and, and the land. I mean, just being able to resolve the landscape scale. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you look at the complexity of landscape models and they, you know, so, and, and the interplay between the landscape. And so you get a lot of, you get a lot of upscale benefits. I yeah, was yeah. kind of downplaying them because those are more hypothetical, um, less well-established, um, but, but for sure. Um, yeah, but that's what I mean by coastlines and mountains. I mean, yeah. also you could say yeah, gradients okay. between urban and rural and all that. Yeah, watersheds. Yeah. Watershed. But the other thing, and you sort of said this, but, you know, people say, well, but going to high resolution won't fix the biases. I mean, so far, the the high resolution models have still had double ITCZs and monsoons that are wrong and so on. But I think it's fair to say, as you said it, that, you know, first of all, it hasn't been done on this scale before. And I think it's reasonable to say that let's imagine that you spend lots of money and put a lot of smart people in a few big centers and try to have them do global high resolution modeling. Decent chance the biases will get better, but pretty safe bet they won't get worse, and the extremes will definitely get better. I mean, we know resolution yeah. does that. So every every instance of anybody almost without fail, extremes get better at high resolution. So, to the extent that we're trying to do climate adaptation science, and extremes are important for that, um, and other regional you know features that are controlled by the by the lower boundary, then it will get better. So I, those are the arguments that I. See, and yeah, then, no, and I then, think I think they're 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 right on, um, and um, yeah, in the end, it becomes a bit of a silly argument because the everyone is pushing to higher resolution. It's just a question of who's pushing yes. faster, you know. So some people are saying, yes. "Oh, we need to go to you know fifty kilometers." Other people say, "We need to go to ten kilometers." And the and the person's you know we're saying actually, well, the computers allow us to do it at one kilometer. So let's try to get it working there. Yeah. in a way that we can do in a collective way internationally and work out the problems um, yeah. and um, yeah, and see what we and, can learn. And let's talk about the climate services part and how the idea has evolved. Because my perception of it is that originally, I mean, maybe this was even before you got involved in it, but originally this sort of sense went, and before it was called Eve, which is, I think, your name, but uh, your uh, invention. But the original idea, and this goes back to um, Tim Palmer and, and um, Shukla, Shukla 15 yeah. years ago, um, was, you know, the models are bad, so we should go to higher resolution because we can and we need better models. And that was kind of it. I mean, went to the, the things that I have read from the period before the last year or so had that flavor. I mean, the arguments, the sort of examples given were examples from weather forecasting where clearly resolution does help with the climate problems different in various ways. So how it seems to me that the thing has evolved, especially in the last year, and I've been thrilled about this, and 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 it's what's made the, the project seem so exciting to me, is that the dimension of actually providing the service, actually working with the users, has become now something that's occupying a lot of the, the thoughts and effort of the people involved in planning this thing, that it's giving being given serious attention how to really do this um, you know, this is not just a yeah. lip service, but now a, a big part of the idea is to think about how to implement it in a way that takes the real world users into account. So, I mean, do you want to say anything about that, how that's gone and the role of AI? And yeah, yeah, I think um, what, what think we have what, decided and haven't decided yet about it and yeah, how it'll scale. I think that's what's that's been kind of exciting um, is actually to see the evolution in thinking between, OK, can we simulate it to what can we do with it? and how um, how we can use that capability to really kind of engage and empower um, people who have to 
make decisions. Um, so you're right, that's been an evolution. Um, there's still this lingering feeling in the community because they heard about it 15 years ago. And and some, you know, Eve's a community of people who are developing the ideas and different people tend to emphasize different aspects of it. So some people really mm -hmm. just emphasize the fact that we need a one kilometer model because the other models are not sufficient to answer our questions. And this is our best chance of, of improving the situation. And that gets a certain amount of pushback because people think maybe it's over oversold or it's too expensive for the extra benefit or whatever. But the 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 change over the last year has really been this this appreciation for for what it means to engage users and the opportunity we have to do that if we structure things in the right way. Um, and here, I think AI has also played a really important role because it allowed us to begin to imagine how we would scale information provision from this, you know, before when we were working with these, these kilometer scale models, it was just, there's just so much data, <laughs> you know, you just, it's just, you just yeah. suffocate on your own data. And um, AI really presented it itself as a way and an opportunity to, to engage much larger communities in helping us process the data. Because the, you know, the way I like to put it is that AI lowers the barrier for those who want to go from data to information. Um, mm -hmm. And you see that in many fields. You don't have to be, you know, the right. people who make these weather forecast models. They're not experts in the details of weather dynamics, but they're making some pretty good AI weather forecast models. And it's because you just need to know something about AI and you need to know something about the data and something about what you want, but you don't need to know all the physics in between. Um, it can help. But by lowering that barrier, you, you, we just create a possibility to scale the, the provision of the data. And so Eve is still developing. I mean, so the, 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 what we've been doing right now um, is we've been talking about sort of what you would say pillars or principles of what Eve should do, you know, international collaboration, user-driven, um, mm -hmm. digital commons, access to data. But, you know, writing it out in black and white, that, that really would that you can't do that in a week in Berlin, right? So um, the, the right. thinking now is what we're trying to get is funding for a two-year preparatory project. And then we could engage um, people from around the world in saying, how would, we, how would we really meet this dream of creating something that is responsive to user needs, which engages the private sector where the private sector is good at things, which maintains space for the public sector where the public sector is necessary, which gives people without resources a chance to express you know their creative ability to extract information from data you know how can we do that in practice what's the governance what's the technology footprint how can we do the computing in ways which are sustainable and good examples of um, you know high intensity energy usage with low carbon footprints which we need more examples of so th this has to be worked out and so the thought is let's you know, let's, let's, let's do this. This will, you know, what, let's, let's work through these details for a couple of years and um, try to write down specifically what this could look like. And um, yeah. And then I think when we do that, then we'll be ready to roll up our sleeves and, and, and try to make this next step in climate science slash service. And so the, but, but in short, the idea of the AI, as I understand it, I know there's tremendous, this is going to obscure a tremendous amount of of rich detail, but is, is that you could have, um, you know, you could give a prompt sort of like you go to chat GPT and say, Hey, you know, write me a, you know, a joke in the style of Chekhov about playing golf or something and have it spit something out. We could go and say, Hey Eve, you know, tell me how, 
you know, how many hurricanes there'll be per year in Boston in 2040 compared to now. And it will go in and do everything it needs to do to pull out that data, which would take people a long time to do. And of course, the technical challenges of doing this and the amount of computing power is, is not trivial to do on this scale. But that's sort of the idea, right? That we wouldn't have to have. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. And then you could, you know, but but again, you could say, well, you know, the, the difference a little bit between the chat GDP is that we work with controlled data. Um, you know, yeah, so yeah. We, we know exactly the data and that's clear. Right, and right, we also right. um, we also can, you know, once we have a rough idea from the interaction, we could actually go to the data ourselves. You know, we don't have to trust the the, the, the AI's interpretation of the data that just lets us kind of work our way through things. And the other thing that you would like to do is because you could use the AI to kind of interpolate between scenarios is you have this possibility of perturbing the situation and asking how something, you know, a, 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 hey, ChatGDP, I want to build, you know, I want to do this in my urban environment. Um, you know, how would that change the temperature field mm. in 2080, according to these six models? And so, mm. you know, this use of AI to look at sort of to interpolate in, in some sort of perturbation space to allow people then to kind of interact and play games with scenarios as they develop, you know, water management systems, you know, urban cooling, um, um, energy um, resources, whatever. Um, is is an important part of the AI because I think it's this interactivity that allows people to work through examples in their own language. Um, and this won't be one master. I also don't think this will be one master AI engine. Maybe may, maybe it will, but I, I kind of imagine that um, you would develop AI around um, around niches. So um, you know you would have AI engines for people who are doing water resources in particular place and maybe they'll scale to other places maybe the other places use different terminologies but that's where this whole human reinforcement and engagements of users is really crucial because the ai has to anticipate how the users want to hear the information and you see that going on in the ai right now with ChatGPT. the whole the whole game has been how do you get the damn thing to answer in ways that that people um find useful um and and so having this 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 I don't know, congeniality, this ability to interact in a useful way is an important part of the design. And there you also see how it expands the whole frontiers of the field because it really brings, it engages whole new communities in our field to help solve problems which are important, you know, for everyone. Um, and so that's kind of exciting too because we really expand our science and that goes back to the, the, the funding thing we were talking about before. Especially imagine yeah. people can make money on what we do, this would be a revolution in our field. You know, well, right people now people are the, making money off. This is already happening. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it, this would scale that up. Um, and and it, sometimes I'm kind of. But uh, Eve is going to be like, a non. It's not going to be a for-profit venture. No, Eve right? isn't about making money, but it should enable people to make money. Right. But it should also yeah. enable people who don't have money to get the information they need as well. You know, so that's yeah, this yeah. balance is, yeah. And, well, um, this is part of a, I mean, yes, I, 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 this is the part that Eve or no Eve, I feel very strongly about. I think we, the private sector has forged ahead in the region, in the area of climate services in a way that's kind of left the public sector behind a little bit, not to say that there isn't a ton of public sector climate service stuff being done, but there's, isn't quite the equivalent of what has happened in the private sector over the last few years. And I think that's a big problem and it's starting to be recognized as a big problem. And, and yes, Eve is definitely um, one, uh, you know, a, a, one way of addressing that. I, as long as we're here, I don't want to keep you, you know, all night. Um, <laughs> but as long as I was trying to bring up the, uh, you know, the different criticisms, there's one more that I feel like I should raise because you hear it a lot. And it, I, it's really two, but I think they're sort of different sides of the same thing. One is 
um, well, we can't just have one model because we know that model diversity is important for capturing the uncertainty and so on. And the other, which is a flip, and I know what the answer is to that, I think, but I should let you say it. You know, we can't, we don't want to collapse things to one model because we should never believe any one model, no matter how good we think it is. And the other is, well, at high resolution, we can't afford big ensembles and very long runs. So we can't, and or very long runs. So we can't do paleoclimate, for example, or maybe Eve won't even go to 2100, as we've been talking about it more as like 2050 as the, as the, you know, the longest time. And we can't do the large ensembles that have been so informative in terms of expressing the um, uncertainty around internal variability. So those are kind of two, both the same thing because they're both about. Yeah. You know, either multi-model ensembles or single model ensembles, but either way, ensembles as a way to um, to span the solution space more broadly and characterize uncertainty and resolution being sort of a trade-off with that because it's all computer, you know, it's all just... Yeah, I think that comes day. from the point of view is that um, somehow people have got the idea that EVE is like this moonshot where you just do this a single model running at the highest possible resolution and you run it once. And no one's saying that. You know, 15 years ago, people thought, gosh, if we could do that, that would be great. That was 15 years ago. And if, right. if that had been funded, they would be doing it now. And we would have that technology and it would have been great. It wouldn't have answered already the questions. And we, then we would say, okay, now we can do one. Let's do two, three, four, five. Let's do it with another model. And right. so, you know, Eve has never been about, you know, I, I have this phrase, Eve's never about one model to, 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 um, to rule them all. And it's never about, you know, um, um, uh, one ensemble member to to fool them all. Um, so Eve is is really about um, pushing the boundaries of technology to run multiple models across multiple centers in small ensembles at the highest possible resolution. And as soon as you enable yourself to do that, and we see this all the time, is you've 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 learned to work at the forefront of technology. And as soon as you do that, you just you take a little breath and you step back a factor of two in resolution. And suddenly you've increased your ensemble capacity by a factor of, you know, eight to 16. And if you say, instead of a one and a half mm -hmm. kilometer model, I want to do something with something that's, you know, four kilometers or mm -hmm. five kilometer model, um, you can fill out this ensemble space really quickly and very easily. Um, but only you only learn to use these technologies by pushing at the front end to the highest possible resolution. Um, and of course, you know, Eve doesn't pretend to replace everything. I mean, we, we for paleoclimate, um, maybe the traditional models or simpler variants of the traditional models are the best tool. That's right. fine. Um, maybe the existing models will be things that we need to involve in interpreting what the very high resolution models are doing. Right. Um, so you know this as well as anyone. You led this workshop in Trieste many years ago on on model hierarchies, and right. and that comes really from this knowledge community, which is when we want to understand how things work, we have to, you know, take things apart, use simpler versions, run more ensembles. Um, but no one's there's no illusions about that. I think people understand that. So so I find that a bit of a a bit of a red herring. Um, but you know maybe it's just a, a remnant of the narrative that came out 15 years ago, because 15 years ago, that was the most you could hope to do. But we're 15 years later and technology's advanced and we've seen the power of, of, of these other things. And I think we're all aware of that. So I, yeah, I don't think that's a real concern. 
Um, but it could be that a lot of people are still a bit embedded in, in, in an old narrative. Yeah. Well, I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to priorities. I mean, and, and cost because, because again, if this was a cheap initiative, either in money or human resources, it wouldn't stimulate big arguments, but because, well, it would have been a, done, you know, it would have been um, done and right. It would have been done. And because it's a big thing that is going to take a lot of funding and also a lot of people's effort, you know, it makes people think about all the trade-offs harder than they. Yeah. But one of the trade, one of the things that I think, and you know, you've mentioned this before is, um, it, right now we train people in, in climate science. And increasingly, they're finding jobs in the private sector, especially in the U.S., because of what you know the, what you said, this growing private sector. But they're working yeah. on kind of the byproducts of a knowledge industry where nobody's accountable for the data, right? Um, and you know, so there's no standards, um, right? And so, in a way, you know, what we want to do is professionalize that whole business, yeah. um, base yeah. it on on the and. And this creates a lot of opportunities for people that creates, you know, we talked about this, you know, German job problem of where young people go. And, and <laughs> yeah. you, you know, we, 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 we have an ability to create a, a sector of our field, which will um, bring opportunity and structure and standards um, uh, to an area where it's sorely in need. And it is, it's hard to pick up the paper where we don't talk about climate change. It is one of the biggest problems in the world. And to talk about a billion dollars here or there for a program to address it seems like um, it's hard to it's hard to take climate change well, seriously if that's a concern. Okay, so mind. here oh, well here, so here's the other thing you hear though. I mean, yeah. as long as we're here. So I mean, I, I get uncomfortable with that rhetoric around, well, it's climate change is such a big problem, so why can't we afford a billion dollars? Because when you say that you inevitably draw the comparison between Eve and not other climate science research projects, but but uh, action projects. I mean, what if you spent the billion dollars simply trying to come up with the most effective way to to burn less carbon? I mean, I'm not sure this is the way you would come up with it. It, it somehow just saying climate is important, so we have to spend a billion dollars is not quite enough. No, right? no, I, I, to... I, but but we're not saying that because if somebody had a proposal that was compelling for you know that cost a billion euro or dollars or or, or right. currency right. of your choice with equivalent um value then um we should take it seriously and we should look at it and so one of the things is a, a lot of people have come together and and they think this would really um add value and fill a gap um and address a need um and given that the price tag Given that, and given the problem, the price tag right. isn't really um, a, a crazy number. Is 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 is, right. is the feeling? Yeah. Right. So, no. I, so, and I, yeah, I think but, there might be other projects. You know, because right now Eve isn't really competing. There's not another proposal that I know of on the table for for that scale of sort of collaboration. So people say, yeah, well, there's Eve, but what about you know other things? And I said, yeah, what about other things? We should be developing all of these other things, you know, at light speed and try to pick the best ones and move them forward. And so, um, you know, if, if there's a better idea um, and we have to choose between the two, then we should choose the better idea. Um, yeah. And, and people should hopefully kind of be, feel mobilized to kind of actually think about how can we do better? Yeah, no, I guess what I, the, the ax I'm, that I'm grinding here is, is, and you've heard me grind it plenty in the Eve meetings, 
and I've been gratified to see that I'm not alone in, in thinking this, is that it just is, we can't just say climate is important so we have to spend a billion dollars because our models aren't good enough because it's really not obvious how any realistic degree of model improvement brings benefit. That's not to say it doesn't bring benefit. Yeah. It's just to say, I mean, I'm sure it will. It's just to say that I think climate scientists as a group with many exceptions, but as a group, we're not particularly sophisticated at understanding how our information is used or could be yeah. used. It's not but really that's our job. I... And, and so we're a little glib about that. And I think there's a big intellectual need still to um, figure out how to make optimal use of the information. And it's, I've been very gratified yeah, yeah, I, to see I, that I... Eve taking that on board, but it's not sort of where it started. And so, so no, anyway, no, you're absolutely So that's absolutely why the right. argument that climate is climate is important. So we should spend a billion. Like I, I don't. The reason that makes me it, itchy when I hear it is that it it sounds like we think that's the end of the argument. Like, but it really isn't, right? Yeah, you yeah. Have to no, show how the no, billion dollars is really going to do something. Absolutely, absolutely right. Um, and I think again, just maybe to come back to that point of of you know Wilco. I mean, you and Wilco and others have been quite influential in helping us understand that. Um, that the, the 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 bottleneck is often in how we distribute the information, not the information itself. Well, um, not just distribute, but also produce. Efforts. I mean, how? Not just. Oh. I mean, it's deeper than distribute. I think it's also yeah. what kind of information we actually are. Yeah, how the information gets taken up. You know, whether that's because we're not engaging people in its production, or whether it's because you know there's there's many elements to that. Yeah. But often this is this is you know the, from the science community and that reflects the old vision a little bit was the idea that ah if we just build a you know high resolution model we would have information at the scale we need it and then we're done and and Wilco terms is the information deficit model right and I think Eve doesn't follow that the idea isn't that that primarily I think and that's the V in Eve the virtualization for me it's really about an imagination deficit model and I think right now <laughs> that 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 really what people have a hard time and where Eve can help is is understanding what the world could look like. And so you look outside and people are beginning to wonder, you know, in New York with your rain today, people are beginning to, you know, play these mental games about what could a two degree or a three degree world look, how, how would New York look differently? And yeah. we need to give them tools to imagine how that could be. And there, I think the power of AI and virtualization and the information at scale it might not be perfect, but if we if we move in this direction that that enables people enables people to imagine what a warm world would look like in terms of the things that they care about, we would help them be more effective in the things that they have to do to prepare for that world. But we might also be more effective in sensitizing them to um, what warming really means and um, and the seriousness with which they should. Um, um, consider efforts to limit the warming as much as possible. Um, yeah. So I think this, uh, this imagination deficit is, is, is bigger. And some of that has all sorts of histories of, you know, um, of, of, of development on inequality and all of these problems will color everything that we do. But yeah. I think if we set ourselves out as an international collaboration and we're aware of that, and we engage the right people we have a chance to do something different and to do something better. Right. And that's why as a community, if we can come together, then we'll benefit from the people who have these experiences. We saw that in Berlin and you saw how the, you know, the openness of the community tried to evolve the ideas to, yeah. to meet these, um, 
criticism. Yeah, I feel like two two things we should add here. I mean, one is sort of a small one, but it's not just about imagination of the future. It's also about interpretation of the present. I mean, a lot of the questions that I get, both from the media and from the user group that I interact with the most, which is the insurance community, a lot of the questions they have are not about the future, but about the present. I mean, of course, we just had six inches of rain in New York. Is that climate change or not? Right? Everybody knows it's happening. Yeah. There's no argument about that. But the question is, is this what the world looks like now? Or did we just have a bunch of flukes? Because in fact, the, the we've uh, I just saw that in Central Park, we've broken what was the one hour rainfall record in Central Park two years ago has been broken three times in the last two years, which yeah. is kind of amazing. But so that suggests that it's it's not uh, just fluky, but of course, that's one spot. And, you know, so anyway, there's that that's the climate change question is not just about the future. It's about the present, too. Um, because because distinguishing signal from noise, distinguishing human influence from other factors is takes a lot of science. The other thing you said it, but I feel like I haven't we haven't given quite enough credence to it, and it deserves a little bit more since you just mentioned the inequality and everything. I mean, a big part of the E vision is is a global South North collaboration, and I think one of the more most powerful arguments that you've made, uh, and we didn't you made I only let you make it briefly or. Uh, so far is that um, the rich countries are already doing this regionally and um, and the countries with less resources aren't able to do it or aren't able to do it as well or aren't able to do it themselves. And so there is something equalizing about a, a, um, a global effort where, I mean, it's not to say that a global high resolution model is going to be equally accurate everywhere or that, you know, deficits and observations in one place are not, you know, that various inequalities won't still manifest in it somehow or other. I think it's going to take work to, to overcome those. But that argument I, I think is particularly compelling because it's undeniable that every country that can is going to high resolution in one way or another, just maybe not on a global scale. Yeah, no, no. I think that it also is something that motivates a lot of a lot of people in the community because they um, they, they they feel personally touched by this this um, desire to be more inclusive and in in the science, and they see Eve as an opportunity to actually um, express that value by designing things in ways that learn from how we've done things in the past. But it it would also be a mistake to pretend that Eve won't be colored by all of the distortions we have in, you know, global development and, you know, yeah. national social structures. Um, but we can, we can build on some of the things we've, we've learned over the past years and make maybe a step forward. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a European project for the most part so far and it's, but the work is yeah. to make it not just that, right? Yeah, well, you know, there's one there's one thing in Europe called Destination Earth, which kind of moves in the direction of Eve. But even there, you mm. see an example because within Destination Earth, there's lots of discussion in that about how to make the data private, how to you know close things off. It doesn't involve you know ideally with Destination Earth, it would be a partnership with some group of say African countries, Caribbean or South American countries, where there's mm. historic ties and, and and involve them in the provision of the data so that they get training opportunities and jobs and are really part of, you know, partners in the, in the, in the structure. And that doesn't exist right now. I've been to China a couple of times and there is strong interest there in doing things. I think in the Middle East, there's interest in Eve-like mm -hmm. activities. Japan have been pioneers in a lot of this. Um, yeah, although, absolutely. Um, you know, 
yeah. So, um, so there's, you know, interest percolating around, I think, in Europe, in terms of real programs, Destination Earth goes in the direction of EVE. And, and it's not an accident, because a lot of the people who kind of, you know, myself, Peter Bauer, Tim, um, who laid the groundwork for Destination Earth, I have continued to think and engage other people to evolve the ideas and, and bring us forward to EVE. So there's a certain continuity between Destination Earth and EVE. Um, and um, I mean, the, US, the United States has enormous capacity um, here and a tremendous amount to, to add. And But I think that will come as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're not that good at <laughs> yeah. coordinating our efforts. Yeah, um, yeah. no, it's, it's but, tricky. Yeah. There, there is, you know, you have, I don't know how many climate models and how many um, people doing the same thing, um, where, where a little bit more cooperation seems like could go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, well, I've kept you a very long time. Well, is there anything else we should have should talk about that we didn't cover? <laughs> no, no, I mean, we could talk about everything for a long time. But um, yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thanks Good. so much for doing this, Bjorn. So, it's great to talk with well, you. Thanks for taking thank all this time. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Okay. That was fun, right? Always great to talk to Bjorn. And I hope some of that stuff about Eve is maybe even useful. Maybe some of that can help people understand what it's about. But of course, these aren't meant to be instrumental. And I really enjoyed just having the chance to chat with Bjorn about all that different philosophical stuff. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. And our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>